You are listening to the Adventures in Advising podcast with Colin Cronin and Matt Markin. Are you passionate about working with students and making a difference in their lives? Join us as we bring together and interview those in the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and their own advising stories. We thank you for checking out our podcast. Stay up to date and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Advising Podcast. Now, without further ado, here's the episode. Hello and welcome to Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations. This is Matt Markin and welcome to episode 16 of the podcast. Colm, how are things going with you? Things are pretty good, Matt. We are recording this on uh, Sunday and for me, fortunately, it is a holiday weekend. So I have tomorrow morning... Uh, I can take a little bit of a lay on in bed and uh, while people are uh, enjoying the the podcast, um, though I am hoping to to make the most of the day and and get out hiking. But things are pretty good uh, over here at the moment. Um, We are moving towards, obviously, the uh, beginning of the semester, though we start a little bit later than you do stateside. So, I think it's a little bit of a a fallow period at the moment, a lot of planning going on. And I think you can expect things to to really pick up from the middle of August. How are things with you in California? Get that extra day off. So hopefully you enjoy it. But yeah, Southern California right now, I mean, it's it's fire season. I mean, we're dealing with a lot of different fires in Riverside and San Bernardino counties. Um, And yes, I am okay. So I don't live near where the fires are currently. So I do appreciate those who have reached out. Thank you so much for that. But I do feel for those who are directly impacted by the fires, I mean, I think as of this morning, I mean, we're recording this on a Sunday, more than 7,600 people have been told to evacuate their homes. So uh, really just, you know, thoughts and prayers to them and, you know, shout out to the firefighters who are working in overdrive to fight those fires. So I think there's one fire, the Apple fire, that's consumed like 32 square miles. So you know, uh, just hope for the best for all of that. Uh, from the work side, though, I mean, we're gearing up for our fall semester. So we're actually starting in a few weeks. So August 24th definitely feels different because we were on the quarter system before. So we're used to starting in like late September. So for us to be starting a month before, we're like, oh, my gosh, we're starting earlier. So we're just trying to get everything, everything caught up and done so we can be well prepared for the fall semester. But other than that, I mean, we have a stacked episode to get to. So I think we just dive right into it. We have up first Evelyn Knox, who's the Pan-African Collegiate Scholars Coordinator at Cal State San Bernardino. And I think a lot of us will be able to gain a lot of insight from Evelyn's experiences from residential housing, academic advising, and now in her new role as a Pan-African Scholars Coordinator. It's a very in-depth and fun interview. Uh, we'll also talk about TV shows in that interview and how those impacted her growing up and her collection of pop Funkos. So without further ado, here we go. All right. Up first is Evelyn Knox. Evelyn currently serves as a Pan-African Collegiate Scholars Coordinator at California State University, San Bernardino. Go Yotes! Standing on a foundation of meeting the needs of students from various backgrounds, her years of experience in higher education include expertise in developing and coordinating academic and co-curricular programs, advising, 
teaching, residential life, and counseling. She earned both her BA degree in social sciences and her MS degree in counseling and guidance from Cal State San Bernardino. Currently, she attends the University of Southern California, where she is pursuing her Doctor of Education in Educational Leadership. Evelyn loves her hometown of San Bernardino and elevating the students that come from that community. She also loves a good enchilada, traveling, music, and photography. Evelyn, welcome to the podcast. Matthew, thank you for the introduction. It sounds so long, and I shouldn't have written all of that. (laughs) No, it was perfect. It was perfect. I love it. And you also love enchiladas. Green sauce or red sauce? I prefer red sauce, but I'll do green if it's chicken. I'll do do green chicken. Same. I used to want green on everything when I was younger, and then I was like... like, Either my taste buds changed or what, but I'm red sauce on everything now, but I will do green on, on the chicken. Yes, green and chicken. So usually we start off the interview asking what's new at your campus and how things are going during the fall term. But since we work at the same institution, uh, I bring this up every episode. So we'll skip that one. But how are you doing right now? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm doing well. I think like everybody, you know, this, this staying at home and working virtually, it's, it's shifted in identity for me. Um, at first I was like okay this is this is cool this is cool and then now it's like this is cool this is cool see how it changed a little bit but no missing you know the routine missing the students and having that interaction and i know it's corny and cliche and everybody's saying and i miss my students but really it, it you don't know how much it affects you um until you get like a little taste of it and then you don't have it anymore Oh, yeah. And and those that know you will definitely agree with that. Um, And I know we're going to get to that in the podcast because we're going to talk about a lot, especially like the mentorship piece of it, uh, the student populations that that you 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 currently work with that you've worked with before, probably your time in housing, talking about conferences, and a lot of also personal things that we'll talk about, too. For example, um, your middle initials, MK. Can you tell us about that story? I can tell you about that story. So MK, um, it is no by any means affiliation with Michael Kors. What it stands for is Mercedes Keandra. So first thing, Mercedes, my dad was obsessed with the brand Mercedes. He owned a couple when I was a little, he probably owned one when I was little. <laughs> um, so he, my mom let him use that as my middle name. It is spelled with a Z, however. Um, and I, I did try to use it at the dealership and it didn't work. So I drive a Honda. And my second middle name is Keandra. And until I was 18, I spelled it wrong because there's, there's a J in the middle of it. I had no idea until I had to get my birth certificate. So long middle name. And so one of the things, you know, is you work with, with students a lot on campus um, and now virtually. You're in a kind of new role for the last year and a half as the Pan-African Collegiate Scholars Coordinator. Can you talk more about that role, what that entails? Yeah, so it's exciting. Um, My role, I started it back in April 2019. And the goal of it is to help retain and support students of color, specifically Black students on campus, our Pan-African student population. And that role you know, it, it came at a, at a good point for, I think, the campus. 
because, you know, our campus population for Black students had declined a bit over the years. And, you know, the, the goal of my program is to really help students feel connected on campus, feel comfortable on campus, but also help them thrive and persist through their degree, because the ultimate goal for every student that comes in that door is to graduate. And, you know, this role, that is the center focus of it. But while you're here, we're going to make sure that you're connected and that you're empowered within your identity and, you know, get through, get through and, and be, a, be an example and hopefully continue that legacy for new students to come in. So it's, it's exciting. Um, and I'm, I've been happy to, to be in the role and, and develop it. You know, I was the, the first person to start it and help to build kind of the foundation of the program and what the goals and, and, and mission is. So that, that's been exciting and it's, and it's been a good challenge because it's, you know, it's evolving every year. It's evolving. Yeah. And just like you mentioned, this was like, you're the first coordinator of this. So this is a newly created position. Were you, were you nervous going in that there was pretty much nothing before this? And you're the one that kind of has to create it all. I was, I was more nervous as I started getting into it. And I think I was more nervous toward the end of last year because I'm like, you know, you start thinking like, oh my God, I messed it up. And people had to remind me like, you had, nobody's done this before. So there's no way to mess it up. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it can be, and was a little nerve wracking. Like, what do I do? Where do I start? You know, and this is work that I had been doing almost voluntarily because I was like the advisor to the black student union and, and still am. And supporting different initiatives on campus for Black students. So this is work that had been infused throughout my career at Cal State. And now it's just, I get paid to do it, which is a supreme blessing to me. Mm -hmm. So with that, it's it's the perfect role. And, and there is a bit of pressure because, you know, obviously I represent, you know, Black culture and, and making sure that it, I'm doing it justice is something that I'm always mm -hmm. thinking about. And you know, also not wanting to mess it up because now it's going into the second year. So I've got some comparisons to do. Yeah, you got some eyes looking at it too, but I'm sure it's all going to be positives. Um, okay. <laughs> and let's talk about your students. So the students that, that you meet with when we were on campus now, you know, virtually more like through Zoom and email and all of that during the spring. And of course, now continuing on in summer, fall, yeah. did any of your students uh, express any challenges um, with the online learning format? Yeah, quite a few of them. Quite a few of them. I launched a campaign in spring um, that kind of continued and is kind of continuing still um, to try to reach out to as many Black students on campus as possible. And, and I got a, a good number of students to participate. In, and it was just a simple one-on-one, 20-minute conversation, which ended up being like 20 to 50 minutes for most of the students. Um, and a lot of them just express the the appreciation for being on campus. And I'm, I'm sure that's something you hear in advising all the time because you're meeting with tons of students every day from different, the spectrum of academia. So, you know, hearing students say, I miss going to campus. I miss being in the classroom. I miss, you know, those kinds of things. It, it, it weighed on them a little bit. Um, and also just the challenge of being at home and, and a lot of them were used to having a little bit more independence to where you had campus as an escape or they lived on campus and, you know, they had their own room and their own thing. They were used to going out in the middle of the night to go get Carl's Jr., that kind of thing. But here, you know, you're at home now and you're sharing a space with maybe a sibling or a relative and you don't have that 
that as much autonomy as you used to. So students, I think, were struggling more with that. But I think on the positive side, students have found ways to create a system for them and to create, you know, what works to get get the work done, to get their classwork done. And a lot of our students did well. Students that I work, you know, directly with more often, like our students that are student leaders with the Black Student Union, with the movement. The movement is like a consortium of Black student boards. A lot of them did well. And it could be that flexibility that they appreciated. Some students expressed that, you know, I have I have kids or I have to take care of my family. I have to work more hours. So they appreciated the flexibility. Um, but, you know, it's it's just a it's interesting time for all of them. You know, regardless of your your race or ethnicity, it's just a very interesting time day to day to navigate. Yeah. And just the other day I was thinking about, OK, we have like our continuing students that they know what being on campus is and they had to transition to online. but they they had that feel of okay i know what it is to be a coyote to be at CSUSB. i i i was on campus i got to engage with faculty with my professors i got to engage with other students other departments and now everything's yeah. online where they're still having some sort of engagement and interaction but then i was thinking of like well new students coming in they're not on campus and they they don't get to experience that yet i don't even know if this is even a question I can even formulate, but it's more of like for new students coming in, have you thought about like ways that one, how can you, you can engage them online, but then also once we are back on campus, fingers crossed at some point, how that looks for those students coming on campus for the first time, even though now they were a student for Cal State Sarvanita for at least a semester or maybe a year, who knows how long until we're back on campus. You know, there there was something that, that happened in the month of May for, for my program, which I'm, I'm thankful for. And it was it was a partnership with the Office of Student Engagement and my, um, my good colleague, Michelle Jalali, who oversees like the multicultural orgs and, and helps, you know, oversee a lot of different uh, campus orgs. And what we did was we came together to create a calendar called Melon in May. And it was a series of different Zoom events, different Instagram live events that really kind of helped bridge that experience of I'm at home, but I still want to feel connected to the campus. And it, it really met the students where they are. And they're, they're everybody now, I mean, I can't say everybody, but a lot of people, most people, most students especially are on social media more than they were before. You know, and I know, you know, advising the, the office always utilized social media to engage students in addition to what they were doing on campus. So what we did is really try to tap in there and, you know, make things light, make things, you know, not so stringent because they're they're used to that already. And they're already having to navigate a lot of different mental and physical reactions to what's happening with, with the virus and the, the spread. So what we really did and, and hopefully you know, it shows that it worked, was just connect with them by any means necessary. If they're on Instagram, we're going to be on Instagram. If it's Zoom, we'll have a link for Zoom. Um, whether it's face-to-face meetings like via Zoom, did that and that. That's something that I anticipate continuing for new students to help them stay connected because by now, many of them were virtual for high school. So, you know, this is something that they're they're a little bit more used to. But coming into college, you know, they probably built up in their mind all of these expectations of I'm moving on to campus and, you know, I'm getting a new backpack and I'm going to college and getting new shoes and, you know, I'm getting books and all of that. And, you know, that that's on hold right now. But what's not on hold is that they're still here. 
they're still here. It's just, you know, we're going to connect a different way. So for new students and, and, and thinking of new freshmen, new transfers, they're, you know, probably used to being virtual also and having virtual engagement from the previous institutions. So we're just tapping into that and making sure they know like the campus is still here for you. We're still we're still here. And prior to recording, we were discussing like the current climate. And of course, I say current, but reality, the climate's been here for the longest time and how that's impacted certain students yeah. and in particular, like your students that 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 you oversee. And I think it would be great to talk about that here. And I yeah. guess for those that may not know, like how are how are your students directly impacted by like how institutions are run and, you know, all these political decisions, racism and et cetera and everything. You know, there's quite a few of our students that are, you know, our Pan-African Black identified students uh, were obviously disproportionately affected by a lot of what the unrest and the, you know, the heightened awareness for Black, Black Lives Mattering. I mean, there's no other way to put it. And a lot of our students from Cal State were were out protesting or doing protesting virtually, um, posting different things and really expressing how it's affecting them. Um, San Bernardino in the city, there were a lot of different early on, probably in June, as you know, more unrest started to unravel. There were there were active rioting in San Bernardino, you know, not too far from campus, and students, you know, they see that. And some of them lived in those communities where it happened. So, you know, having policies and procedures and and all of that, you know, kind of hanging over your head as a Black student, there there was a sense of like restlessness and, and powerlessness, but empowerment at the same time. You know, and that's why I think a lot of our students were out protesting. You know, I know there was a protest in, in Rancho Cucamonga right on the corner of it, Haven and Foothill. So there was there was a few of our students out there. And, you know, I, I was glad to see that our students are actively engaging and speaking out and and really putting pressure where it was necessary. Uh, so that that was, you know, it was fulfilling for me as a, as a black person and as a young ish. Now I, I'm old now, but, you know, and someone older than me will say, no, you're not. But looking to see the youth coming up, I'm like, something's going to change. Something is going to change um, because they're, you know, they're at, they're at the handlebars with it. Yeah. And you're not old. It's older. Older. Season. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Well, I guess here's the question in terms of if you're old or not, do you tell students, well, back in my day? I have become that person. And you know, when it started, when I started teaching the freshman seminar, because it's something about standing up in front of students sitting at desks where you feel this, like, the spirit come in you, like, you know, Mr. Feeney come inside you back in my day and you all know what a beeper is. Like, it, yeah. So I am that person and I'm very proud of it. I think I'm there too. I mean, there was, yeah, there was one appointment months ago and I just remember saying, well, back in my day. And then I caught myself saying it and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm that person now. You are that person, Matt. You, mm-hmm. you are. And then I'll you have to get off and do something cool to make it. <laughs> But uh, with your last comment, with you know talking about your students, um, sometimes we'll have advisors that work with all diverse group of students, and the question that comes up is, well, how do I help? How do I support? What does that look like for advisors when they're working with students? You know that that's something that is so tricky to navigate, and a lot of times we have this fear of I'm just not going to say anything because I don't want to say the wrong thing, and I don't want to 
offend anyone. And then also, I don't want to open a door and then I don't know how to close it. You know, those are some of the, that, that raises anxiety for folks, especially um, advisors, especially folks that maybe feel like you can't relate necessarily to a student's experience. Um, and something that, you know, I've, I've found success with, by no means is this clinically tested or anything like that, but, you know, something that I've, I've definitely found success with is asking the question, what's it like in your world right now? And really letting the student be the guide or letting the person in front of you, it doesn't even have to be a student, it could be a colleague that you just want to empathize with. And that's such a, it's such a grounding question because it really can go any direction. It can go any direction. And maybe within that question, asking what's it like in your world right now, there may be something you can relate to, you know, with, with the person in front of you, especially with the student. And, you know, being intentional, being respectful in your curiosity, um, admitting that you have, you know, some ignorance or that you have some blind spots. People appreciate honesty. They appreciate it when you say, you know what, I just don't know, but I am definitely willing to listen and learn and teach. Um, Always affirm what, you know, they're saying, affirm what they shared with you. And, and appreciate their courage for talking. Um, and that's not for you to be this, you know, grand, oh, you are so great to talk to me. No, it's just to say, I'm listening. I'm listening and I'm learning. So those, those are some of the things that I found to be successful. And it's just it's just a great way to open a conversation where you, you may not know what to say and you may not be able to relate. But ask them what's it like in your world that you know, you'd be surprised at the answers that you get. No, that's definitely a great point because I mean, that's, it's an open-ended question. And just like you're saying, it could go in any direction and, and then follow up with questions. But yeah, as long as, like you're saying, we're, we're open, honest, we had, we're admitting what we don't know, what we do know. And it's, it's like any conversation we have with anyone, we're loud, we're lousy actors and people, students can see right through that if we're just trying to put a veneer or whatever or you know whatever it is yeah. but as, if they see that we're honest and we're admitting things hey they're going to appreciate that a whole lot more than us making stuff up they will because you know prior to a lot of the what's been happening a lot of the unrest and the heightened awareness you know we were all still serving everybody we're still serving everybody you know there's me as a black person i have no monopoly on Black students, Black experiences. I, I don't. I'm a, I'm a human being like everybody else. You know, I may have more cultural insight, but, you know, the thing that levels all of us is that empathy. And you are absolutely right. Students can see through it. And if you're, you're, you're being more script and kind of wrote in your responses, they're going to pick up on that. And, you know, it will transform a relationship that could have taken a different, a different route. So, you know, come authentically. And, and by no means does that mean, you know, bear your soul and say, you know, how, you know, you don't know and I wasn't aware and, you know, don't don't do all of that. Just listen, because the person on the other side of you is the is the value right now. You know, couch, whatever we have going on to give a platform to someone else, especially a student. So, that, you know, that's something right. that I really want to, you know, encourage people to try. and also you know, opening, I mentioned opening a door and not knowing how to close it. I think that scares people, especially right now. And, and something you can do to kind of shift 
the conversation back to where, you know, what the purpose is for you meeting with someone is to ask the question, you know, what have all these experiences and all these layers, how have they impacted your short-term goals? And what about your long-term goals? You know, because right now someone, um, I was recently talking to a counselor and they said, we don't really think that we're in the history books right now. So that's why everything is, we haven't taken a pause to just think about what's going on right now and realizing we will be studied, we will be researched for eons and it's happening right now. So acknowledging that there there's layers that are happening right now. And just asking, how does that impact what your short-term goals, your short-term goals are and your long-term goals? And that, that's a great way to kind of close that door, but still be intentional. I like everything that you've said. I mean, because I, I think it gives some you know practical questions that, that can be asked, can lead into so many different directions in that conversation. But then there's also that self-reflection piece uh, with it. So I think for whether it's an advisor, student, anyone at the institution, just humans in general. I mean, I think it's perfect, perfect um, advice that you that you give. Now, one of the words you you were saying, and one of your responses was teaching. I mean, you've taught the freshman seminar, uh, first year experience before. Um, you're teaching a new class in the fall. Yeah, so it's kind of a shift of freshman seminar, and it's it's a learning community. So it really mm-hmm. has that core foundational um, cultural tie. Um, so I'm excited about that. So the themes will be surrounding you know, Pan-African Black experiences in academia and and what that looks like. So there'll be a lot of good conversation and dialogue within it. Um, and I'm hoping to get, you know, more students signed up for it. And, and as they know what it is, hopefully they'll, they'll be inclined to add it. So, you know, I'm still keeping a lot of the foundational pieces of freshman seminar, like introducing them to the university. But this class is open to any level of student it doesn't have to be a new student so nice and i think i found the the course description here so let me read this this engaging course is designed to support the cultural and academic resilience among ccsb's pan-african black undergraduate students themes within the course include black academic excellence raising consciousness advocacy and activism cultural engagement in the classroom and social and personal wellness you wrote that course description i did i did i i, I yeah I was like, "Who wrote that?" Yeah, it was me. <laughs> no, that's that's a really good one. I'm 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 excited that that this is happening. Um, wish you the best on getting a lot of students in that class. And and I mean, you're just an awesome person as it is. So whether it's an advisor, coordinator, uh, instructor, students really benefit from you. And and that's kind of what I think about Evelyn Knox. It's like helping students, mentoring students, advising students, looking out for students. I mean, and you've had various positions in in higher ed all meant to interact and impact student lives. So walk us through Evelyn's journey into higher ed and academic advising. Oh my gosh. So, you know, this question used to be easier because it was like, I'm, I'm new. I've just been working in housing. But now it's like, oh, I got to think back. So I, ultimately, like I started as a, as a peer advisor in what, 2006, I started at Cal State. So I've, I've been there for a minute, just like you. we've grown up we've grown up at cal state san Bernardino. we're old old heads now as they call it but um starting there as an undergraduate as a transfer student and you know just wanting to get involved and there was a job opening within my my major in liberal studies and i became a peer advisor and i really liked it and you know i can't say that without going back almost 20 years prior because i was a not 20 years i don't even know how old i am (laughs) 18 years prior 
Um, I was a peer mediator in fourth grade. And I still have my stupid little certificate from that. But I I say that because it's a tie to like kind of where I am now. Yeah. Being a peer advisor and really liking it, but I was on track to be a teacher. And, you know, of course that was my goal since I was a little kid. I want to be a teacher. And then I just love the flow of working one-on-one with, with students, with my peers. So I, you know, ultimately changed directions from that to become, um, to do counseling as my master's degree. And within that, I was also an RA, a resident assistant on campus. And that's really my gateway into higher education because I, I was a transfer. I lived down the street from campus. So I didn't have a traditional freshman experience. I went to middle college high school, which was a hybrid high school college experience. Just like you, Matt, we've got like similar paths. And, um, you know, I was just, college was my thing. I liked it. You know, I wish high school was because then I could have better grades, but I was a little bit better at college than high school. And being an RA was a way for me to meet more people, learn the campus and and really see kind of what's out there. So that experience transformed me completely. You know, being a peer advisor changed my academic trajectory, but being an RA changed my professional trajectory. And, you know, from being an RA, I went up to being a coordinator you know, a student coordinator and then ultimately a professional coordinator to, you know, oversee nearly half of the residents on campus at one point. And, you know, those experiences just shaped me. I was a I was also a substitute teacher while I was an RA. So there was a lot of different experiences and all of them were related to education. But ultimately, you know, working with students and coordinating efforts for students is where I've been, you know, with housing, pivoting to advising, that was kind of going from student affairs into more academic affairs, I was thankfully able to expand my knowledge base in terms of academic policies and procedures and reading a pause report and all of those different things. Um, So I I had kind of a well-rounded brain in higher ed. And this role, you know, kind of being appointed for this role and rounding out my experiences has been such a good, fulfilling journey for me. You know, and it, it's just taking so many different streets and routes. And I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a weird route. I never said no to anything. I don't think. I don't think I knew about the substitute teaching part. I think I knew everything else but the substitute teaching. That's that's awesome. I did. I subbed for two, for two years. And I don't know if you've ever seen. I'm, I'm positive you've seen the, the Key and Peel sketch with um, the substitute. With the AA Ron. And, yes. Yep. That happened my first day on the job. So. <laughs> I, I have a special place in my heart for that show. Be nice. Yes. That, <laughs> uh, if I had time, I would tell the story. But yes, that, that is a real thing that happened to me. And it without it, I wouldn't be where I am, period. Because it, it helped me grow. I would say, let's let's hear the story. So, okay. There was, it was a small class. It was probably like 15 people in class. It was a middle school. And, you know, I call everybody's name on the roll sheet. And there's one girl in particular who didn't say anything. And I'm like, okay, I say a name and I was saying Lajon and I think it was spelled L-A-J-U-A-N-E. So I was really, I was trying and no, it was Dijon. It was a D. So she didn't say anything. And I'm like, okay, is there anybody's name that I didn't call? And she raises her hand and she's like, I was like, what's your name, sweetie? And she's like, Diagene. I was like, why didn't you say anything while I was doing it? So I couldn't, I, I, I wrote that sketch probably 10 years ago. <laughs> wow. Advisors, anyone, instructors, 
can empathize with that because it's like when you're calling role or you're an advisor and you're calling your student, oh my gosh, am I saying it right? You know, there was a time as in an advising appointment, I could not pronounce this young lady's name. And I think I told you this before, but I was looking it up online. So I was typing in, how do you pronounce this? Um, and she can't, and I, I got the pronunciation because you can click the audio to see how it sounds. I was like, okay, I think I got it. So I walk out to go like call her name and I did it right. She came in and the screen was still up. Uh, how do you pronounce your name? And I don't know if she saw it. I, I kind of feel like she did. So I, I immediately like closed it. But I, I did yeah. say something like, you know, your name is so unique and, and I, I couldn't pronounce it. So, you know, it was me putting my foot in my mouth. And, you know, you do what you can to try to make people feel comfortable and admitted my ignorance at that point so um i have a story with the name so there was this was back in the day i think it was before you started it's back when we had um annette in our office and so she um she signed in a student for an appointment and uh the student it's spelled n-o-e and it it can go either way it could literally be no or noe and i think he went by noe so when I went to call call his name. She purposely waited to see how I would pronounce the name. And I think, and I had done the same thing. I looked on Google. I was like, how do you pronounce this? And it was like, it could be either one. So I'm like, great. I have a 50-50 <laughs> chance. And so I went, I was like, uh, no. And then, I mean, and, and I think he was used to that because he got up and he was like, oh, it's no way. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks. And then Annette starts laughing. She's like, I was just waiting to see <laughs> how you would how you pronounce the name. I was like, Thanks, Annette. Yeah, like you could have chosen to be helpful, but <laughs> you watched me. No, but, but I've done the same thing. I'll, I'll, I'll Google it. I'll also, you know, because Randy at our front counter will always ask them how to pronounce it because he always wants to make sure he says it correctly. So sometimes I'll like try to listen real, real uh, closely to see if I can hear how he pronounces it to make sure I get it. If I miss it, my go-to is to uh, pull up their ID picture and then I'll know who they are. So then I'll go up to them. And I'll be like, oh, hi, are you my 1030 appointment? What's your name? And then so I'll try to get away with it that way. <laughs> Like trick, you should do some tricks to bring students into your office because that's the benefit of sitting near the front counter. Like my office was around the corner, so I'd literally have to be like at the crevice, like listening for it. But that, that helps, and students appreciate it when you go out of your way to, you know, really be intentional with trying to say their name because mm-hmm. a lot of them are used to it, and and right. it's that that cultural respect of right. some of them have sacrificed their names and say, just call me you know, X, Y, Z. It's like, mm-hmm. no, your name, how, you know, it's, it's supposed to be pronounced. And if I, if I get it right, great. If I don't, I still, I still love, you. I still care for you. <laughs> hey, so when you were in housing, it was like a 24 seven job, right? Yes. Yes, it was. Uh, it was a on, it was a on-call duty rotation. So uh, we had a small staff. So we were probably, I think four of us, maybe five at the height, but there were usually about four of us to serve on a duty rotation. So it was at least once a month I was on duty, maybe once every three weeks at the short end. Um, And it was for a full seven days, 24 seven. I had a second phone that would ring if anything happened and it it rang any hour of the day or night. I have received a call to get up and go outside, go to another building, um, go handle a flood, anything. The police are here. Or, hey, there's a bird trapped in the residence hall. Or, hey, there's a student locked inside of her room. And, yeah, I've, I've seen it all. Good and bad. I've seen it all. You were the graduation pledge coordinator. So I have your job now. 
so you, you were handling that. And also on top of that, undeclared or undecided exploratory advising depend on your institution. You're doing that and also uh, supervising peer advisors. How'd you handle all that? I didn't. No, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> you know what? I had a great team around me. There was, there was not a time where I was without support while I was in advising. And especially, you know, you were paired up with me at, at one point and we kind of tackled things together. So there, there was no way that I could have done that job without the support of my team and every single person in the office supported me. Um, and of course, our, our boss, Ed, um, was amazing. And our previous supervisor, Ray, was, was good. When I first started there, he was a, a great support system, too. So that was the only way that I could have done all of that. And also having good students within it. I had a, an amazing set of peer advisors, and they were all fun to, to be around and, you know, kind of offered their own take on everything. And so that that made for a fun supervising experience. And, you know, working with undeclared students, it was really cool to see them just really try to get it, get the major that they wanted, whether they were interested in an impacted major or they were truly undecided and had no clue. So putting together different programs and trying to help them pull that, you know, that path out of them was cool. Like the work I did was was really fun. It was a really, it tapped into my, my I don't know if any of you out there strengths finder people but um my number one strength is is developer and that helped really feed that a lot so yeah i couldn't have done it without a team by no means so you mentioned developer and i think that's perfect because when you mentioned i was like that's that's evelyn you know whether it's working with the students that are in the four-year pledge program or students that are undecided trying to declare a major you know, you're helping them with their journey. But then also like your peer advisors. I mean, it was almost like, I always saw it as like, it was like a family unit that, that you had with them, that you saw what their strengths were that you wanted to build upon. You wanted to kind of help create that foundation for them. You know, maybe they saw you a, 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 as a mother figure, you know, in a way. Was that, has that been something that also you did like in housing or is it kind of just like it organically, that's kind of how your supervising like model has been? You know what, that I think really kind of kicked off in housing because I was in a position to create different things and try different things. I had a, a wonderful supervisor, um, Dr. Christine Bender, who I'm still very close with to this day. And she allowed us to be flexible. She allowed us to, to try different things. And I was so lucky to have Ed as a boss too, who allowed us to try and explore different things and see what works and, and try again, try something different. So, you know, that, that definitely did kind of kick off more in housing where I would have ideas and, you know, I would pitch it to people and they'd be like, okay, let's try it. So, you know, that was fun. And so it's also, I think, a, a mentorship piece as well. Like you, you being mentored, but then also you mentoring others. What would be, what would be your, yeah. your definition of mentorship? Like mentor, mentorship is to me defined as, you know, just, just being a boarder. For folks and letting them kind of develop in front of you. It's almost like a range where, you know, you have animals out there, you got houses out there, you got Laura Ingalls Wilder doing her thing, but you are a border for them to, you know, bounce things off of, bounce ideas off of, and also, you know, kind of wrap yourself around them when needed, but you're really there to see their development and to see the decisions that they make and just be there as a, 
as a place that they can rest, a place that they can, you know, put their head on and, and ask questions of. So that that's mentorship to me. And you mentioned Laura Ingalls, so Little House on the Prairie. Uh, which character would you be on that show? I would be Albert. I would definitely be Albert without question. Um, just kind of dip in randomly, grow randomly, and uh, just try to be the voice of reason sometimes and have bangs in my face. That's <laughs> it. Which character would you be? I mean, I, I I would want to be Pa because he he was he was the morally you know good one and could do no wrong. But I think parts of me would be, um, unfortunately, would be Nelly. Not Nels. Maybe a little bit of Nels sometimes. I, I think everyone has their Nelly side, but no, I think I always identify with Laura because I mean. I think as viewers, we were supposed to <laughs> see through her eyes at, anyway. But yeah, um, I, I can see parts of me in various yeah. characters. I honestly can too, because the, the mom, she she held it down. And I think Todd Bridges was on there at some point. So, you know, I could, I could be Todd Bridges. I could be Mary. I don't know. I could be, what was his name? The, the guy, Mr. Uh, Oh, he always had the lumberjack shirt on. He was the first. Yeah, no, yeah. Just think of it like the the brawny man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. And speaking of shows, we we talk a lot about TV shows uh, during breaks and our hours after work, where we would spend just chatting. What are some of your favorite TV shows growing up? Growing up, so I mean, hands down, I Love Lucy is my favorite show of all time that I've watched that since I was a toddler. Um, and I know every episode backwards and frontwards. Um, and partially because my mom watched it and, you know, I was somewhat of a latchkey kid. So that was on channel 11 every morning. I knew what to do, but um, definitely living single Martin. Those were big staple shows in my family. Um, family matters, all the black TV shows that were on, you know, channels two through 13. <laughs> The Parkers, Moesha, all of these shows, but really Martin, Living Single, um, Cosby Show, big shows for me. Fresh Prince, of course, is probably one of my big favorites. Different World, those were shows that I remember distinctly watching when I was growing up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For me, it was whatever my parents were watching because they controlled the TV. So, yeah, it was Family Matters, Facts of Life, Golden Girls. Um, for sure. And then especially for my dad, it was like Matlock and all the like uh, lawyer shows. So like even Perry Mason, Perry Mason. Uh, the black and white TV show, and also the, all the TV movies, Magnum P.I. And then when I would be, because um, I was on a year-round school in, in elementary school, so then I would have you know, a month off every like three, three or four months. So it was like whatever was on TV. So it was like Supermarket Sweep or MacGyver. So just go from like... Um, Price is Right to an action show to lawyer show to whatever else is there. Did your parents watch soap operas? No, they didn't. But when I was in kindergarten, I would uh, my mom would drop me off because I, I, I had the kindergarten class that was in the afternoon. So um, I would get dropped yeah. off at the babysitter and all she would watch was As the World Turns and... Like all my children. All, yep, all my children. Yep. That's what my, my brother... I used to stay home with him a lot because he would skip school. And it was, I mean, he's grown now, so it's fine. But <laughs> back then, he we would watch a ton of rap videos. Like, so BET all day, all morning, MTV. You know, I was a huge music video fan because of him. 
And he would watch soap operas too, though, like all my children. But then we would, all the afternoon stuff, Price is Right, all of that was, that was good TV. That was nap TV back then. I was, uh, like being like five years old watching a soap opera, I don't know what is going on. All of a sudden, you know, it's like there's a twin and then a triplet and then one's evil. And I'm like, I'm so confused. And and they all live in the same, what is it, Pine Valley? Mm -hmm. 80s TV was amazing. Yeah. I mean, growing up, I liked uh, Murder, She Wrote until I realized I was like, you don't want to be around Jessica Fletcher. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of dangerous. Right. (laughs) The shows that, what what was your least favorite TV shows that you just kind of left the room when your folks put them on? Bonanza. My mom was a big Westerns, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, all of that. (laughs) Mine, yeah, was, was Andy Griffith. And I later loved Andy Griffith. Like I started watching it on Hulu a few years ago and I was hooked. Uh-huh. I was like, why didn't I watch this? It's so good. Yeah, it's like going back now, it's like, oh, this actually was a pretty good show. It's got a good story, <laughs> you know, comedy, wonderful. So I guess transitioning from TV shows, talk about your pop Funko figures. So Matt, this is a great segue to you as a, as a gateway hoarder for me. Um, <laughs> it's my fault. It is your fault. Matthew Markin has a collection of pop figures that is unrivaled. And except Carolina, Carolina has a. Oh, yeah. She's got like shelves worth of. It's like a warehouse. So Mm -hmm. Matt comes in and he starts getting all these little figures in his office. I'm like, those are cute. And then I asked him one day, as I normally do in challenge, I'm like, I wonder if they have the black figures. I'm going to get all the black ones. I just said it in jest. Like, I want to get all the Black Pop Funko figures because I'm that person. And lo and behold, Matt Markin comes to my office with a pop figure of Lisa Turtle. And Mr. T, I think was like the first one you gave me, either Mr. T, Dion from Clueless, mm-hmm. and Lisa Turtle, and the Black Ranger. So yep, Zach. Yeah, Zach, the Black Ranger. And then you gave me another one. I forget which one. Was it Prince? It might have been. You st- he, Matt started my first Pop Funko Village. And ever since then, every time I go to any store that sells them, I'm looking in that section like a creep. Like, oh, they have Mr. Jefferson. They have George Jefferson. So I'm, I'm hooked now. And I haven't, you know, because I haven't been in the office, I haven't, like, bought anymore. But um, thank you for starting that collection. <laughs> because, yeah. It's it's a thing. I think I have like twelve or thirteen now. So it's it's, it's nothing compared to Matt in some. No, it's gonna keep growing. Um, if you go on Amazon, I'm telling you, like they, I just bought the Michael Jordan one. Really? They had two different ones. So I bought the red uh, with the red jersey because I'm that's most iconic. But um, yeah. I really like the jerseys uh, that the Bulls had with the the black with the red lettering. But that mm-hmm. one was like an exclusive limited edition one. So it was more. I was like, no, I'm not going to buy that. But they have the Michael yeah. Jordan. They have Tupac. I've seen the Tupac one with the bandana. Uh-huh. And the one with the, the hockey jersey on, I think, too. Yeah. There's a few of them that I put in my cart in Amazon. You know how you make these like mock carts? Like, yeah, one day I'm going to buy all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there's an Ice Cube one where he has the lowrider from the day mm-hmm. video. Salt and Pepper, I know, came out with one in June. Um, there was a few. There was... There, there's a lot of black ones that I want to create. And I know this may sound very, very racist. I'm sorry, but that's just my culture. I really want to represent it. But, you know, I'm I'm also looking at some of my non-black pop figures. Like I saw um, 
Alfred Hitchcock. I wanted that one because he's like black and white, monochrome colors. And um, Britney Spears, the one with the snake from the MTV VMAs. So it's a, it's a thing. It is an addiction. And, you know, this pandemic kind of stopped it. I always thought, like, oh, these are the stupidest things. Why would anyone buy this? And then, like, you buy your first one. It's like, you just keep doing it. And then I'm like, oh, I became a stupid one to do it. <laughs> you can't help it. Like, it, it just caught on like wildfire. And you were the one that started it in the office. So we got a few more minutes here. Um, so I do want to ask you about you. You are also a DJ. Um, I, I I don't DJ as much anymore. Um, but you know I do. It's something that has been a hobby of mine since two thousand and eight. And I've always, like I said before, I love music. I love music videos. I love all of that. And you know that started from my brother from when I was very very little. And I just it always was in me. And I went to DJ school, like this, um, it's called Scratch DJ Academy out in Santa Monica. And this was like in the summertime when I was, you know, out of school. And I would just take the train and the it was like a push to get out there because it's way in LA and I lived in San Bernardino. I would get on like a train and three buses to get there and walk like two blocks. And I did it faithfully for like eight Saturdays. And we were there for maybe like three hours just learning how to DJ on, on turntables, vinyl vinyl old school turntables and now everything's digital so i had to kind of change my mindset to do djing virtual not virtual but digitally try not to tell people because then people are like hey i need a dj and i'm like i'm nervous i don't want to do that so then uh you won't answer the question if i say what's your dj name i i, I will it's uh, i feel so corny saying this but it's it's dj this and that and they made us make up a dj name while we were in dj school and I was like thinking, because they were going around the room like, what's your DJ name? What's your DJ name? I'm like, what am I going to say? And I thought about the song, because um, I think at the time that Hamster commercial was out for Kia. Oh, yeah. Playing that you could get with this or you could get with that. And I've always loved that song since I was little. So I was like, I'll just take that. And second to last question, um, let's talk about Nakata. So you've been a Nakata member. You've... Um, Attended Nakata conference, presented yeah. Nakata conferences. Um, I think the one I'll always remember is the the Nakata Region Nine conference in Reno, Nevada, um, in 2017. What What do you remember from that conference? There was a There's a lot I remember from that conference. Actually, um, I remember never being to Reno before, and kind of thinking, "What's there to do in Reno?" And being pleasantly surprised at how pretty it was. Because I, the only thing I knew of Reno was the show Reno 911. So it was it was cold. It was really pretty. I didn't know there were mountains in Reno. There was a lot of discovery. I will say that to be very, very safe. I will say there was a lot of discovery in Reno. Um, I remember the conference being cool and, you know, I didn't have my ribbon. And, and you said something about it. So they gave me this ribbon like the was it the presenter ribbon yes and thank you to derek uh furukawa shout out to him <laughs> walked it over to me personally because matt told him to no all i said was hey uh derek do you know if there's any extra uh, presenter ribbons because uh, evelyn's a presenter for two presentations and um, they didn't have one for her unfortunately and he found one and tell him how you were pointing over at me while I was sitting on the couch and how you said I was angry. <laughs> I never said that. That is not true. Evelyn is joking, so... <laughs> no, that, that definitely didn't happen. But I did get the ribbon. 
<laughs> I think we should tell them about the chair incident. Go for it. <laughs> I think, you know, I'll say this. So you don't think that people in high places, in high positions, have this streak of competitiveness, but the game of musical chairs will take all of that doubt away. And we we use that as a as a icebreaker within our presentation. And it got it got very serious. It was on a Friday, wasn't it like the last day? It was the last day, the last presentation of the day. Like that's how we're ending the conference. And you know the last day of the conference, everybody's like, oh I got my flight. I gotta get out of here a little early. We had a pretty decent crowd in our in our session and musical chairs. That that's a thing for people. I don't care what level you are. You could be, let's say, the director of advising for the campus, and you're just, you know, duking it out. Let's just say everyone was okay. Um, it just got a little competitive. But if you catch us at a conference, um, come see us, and we might tell you the rest of the chair incident story. I think it's just been such a pleasure working with you. And I know we don't, you know, work in the same office anymore, but we work together for what, almost six years I was in advising, five, six years. And it was it was always fun. It was always something that we were doing all the time and, and being able to present with you and get to know you more and have opportunities to, to grow from you because you were such a wealth for the campus. You know, there's nobody, you know, more dedicated to advising and to helping students i mean then then that office as a whole but it's especially you know you and 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 the folks on on the team so it it was it's been a pleasure all the time and i miss that we don't get to talk as much anymore um because we we definitely had some some times especially and now it takes a podcast to actually catch up (laughs) i know i know now now we're going to do it officially (laughs) but evelyn knox this has been a lot of fun um I, I think it'll be great to have you on again. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for surefire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast. I would love to come back. I really would. And this, I, I don't know. You know, back in the day when we would do videos and I would be like, Matt, we got to stop. We got to stop recording. And it would take two hours to do a video, a 10 minute video, because I'm so... But I like talking. It's fun. Especially we, we got a lot of things to talk about. Yeah, and I, I've, I've missed you. So I'm, I'm glad we got to have this conversation. And, you know, I just hope it, it's not one of those, um, let's talk soon. And then, of course, life happens. And then we don't talk for like six months. And so it becomes the lies that we tell each other in high school yearbooks when we sign KIT. <laughs> no, that the version of that for higher ed is I'm going to find some time for us. I'm going to put it on your calendar. <laughs> awesome. Take care, Evelyn. You too. Matt, thank you for that interview with Evelyn Knox. I found it really interesting. So 
so many different points that she hit on, but I thought the um, learning community course that she has coming up sounded really interesting. And I suppose having worked in res life study abroad, I could empathize when she talked about working in housing and being on 24-7. I was never on 24-7, so that's even more intense than I ever had it. But certainly I have memories fr- from that time and you know, the phone rings and, and you wonder what, what it's going to be. So uh, thank you. Thank you for that. I, I really enjoyed it. And just before we go into our next interview, a couple of people to give a shout out to who have been in touch via the various social media channels to um, mention the podcast. So to David Comp, who is the assistant provost for global education at Columbia College Chicago. He gave us a shout out on LinkedIn and we really appreciate that, David. To Elspeth Jones, who is somebody that I know from my time at UCD and she is a leading scholar in terms of internationalization and intercultural education and she is a professor emeritus from the University of Leeds and she was in touch on Twitter to say that she has learned a lot from the podcast particularly from our interview with Leanne in episode 14 and also to Rebecca O'Hare and she really has enjoyed our last few episodes as well so a shout out to all of those people and I suppose we have yet another interesting interview coming up Matt isn't that right with Mike? Yes we have Mike Sarsasima from Loyola Marymount University and Actually, someone that um, Evelyn knows as well. Uh, We met Mike at the Region 9 conference in Reno, Nevada. And that was, goodness, uh, 2017, I believe. And so this is a fun interview as well with Mike. I mean, we go over a lot of various topics uh, from talking about undergrad and grad advising, uh, teacher preparation advising, mentoring students in the arts, which um, I think this is the first time on our podcast that we've talked about mentorship in the arts. So I think a lot of great information that uh, listeners can gain from this. So let's dive right in. All right. Up next, we have Michael Sersosimo, who's an academic advisor in the School of Education at Loyola Marymount University. He works with students in undergraduate teacher preparation, counseling, higher education administration, and school psychology. He is also a lecturer in the Department of Teaching and Learning. Originally from Peabody, Massachusetts, Dr. Sersosimo moved across the country to earn his BFA in film production from Chapman University and his MA in guidance and counseling from Loyola Marymount University. In 2018, he earned his EDD in Educational Leadership with a concentration in Higher Education Administration from the University of Southern California. He is a proud first-generation student. At LMU, he is an active staff member serving on the Staff Senate, participating as a staff leader in alternative breaks, trips to Cuba and Guatemala, and mentoring first-generation students in the First to Go program. He also co-founded the Advising Collaborative in 2017, which is a community of professionals across campus who identify advising as a major component of their institutional responsibilities. 
The AC shares ideas and best practices, creates advising resources to ensure consistent advising practices, and builds and maintains communication about the LMU community amongst advising professionals. He is an active member of NACADA. He has served on committees, volunteered reading proposals, and was the concurrent sessions chair for the 2020 Region 9 Conference. Also in 2020, he was awarded the Region 9 Certificate of Merit for Excellence in Advising, Advisor Primary Role. In his free time, he volunteers at Venice Arts, mentoring low-income youth in filmmaking classes, which he has been doing for over 10 years. In 2014, he was honored for his volunteer work as an artist mentor. He also enjoys running marathons, watching films, watching Boston sports, listening to the Beatles, and spending time with his niece, Madeline. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, been looking forward to this. A little nervous, but, uh, you know, since you guys have been getting really popular, um, but uh, so it's, it's great to be here. Well, we are delighted that you're able to join us. And what a bio. I mean, there is a whole host of stuff for us to to delve into, uh, in, including uh, may, maybe Boston sports. I spent a good bit of time in Massachusetts way back when. But before we before we delve in uh, to the bio, how are things with you in this uh, COVID-19 world and, and what's going on at your institution? Sure. Uh, well, you know, like many of us uh, working from home right now, but it's you know, it's been challenging in a lot of ways. I think we're all dealing with our, you know, good and bad days. And, um, you know, I'm no different in that regard. And I know a number of my colleagues at LMU feel similar. Uh, the, um, you know, this is public knowledge. I'm not going to get into this too much, but uh, I, I did check to see if this was posted publicly. So I feel like I can share this. But, you know, we are dealing with some hardships in the sense that we do have furloughs now um, happening. And those will be taking place uh starting on June 1st, which, you know, is really hard to hear um, that news. And, uh, you know, it's regarding the student aspect of it and advising, you know, it's, um, you know, been Zooming a lot, uh, you know, Zoom's become my best friend and definitely has made me rethink about how I do my work. Um, you know, some of it I like, some of it I don't like as much, but, um, and, uh, you know, trying to, so, but still trying to stay positive with that. And also, you know, the students, it's interesting because I work with both undergraduates and graduate students at LMU. So, it's been kind of interesting seeing how they're, um, you know, dealing with uh, these, some of these challenges because we are online with instruction through summer and uh, in the fall we'll probably be like a split right now. We're hoping to come back and do some classes face to face, but I know, um, you know, we're also looking at, for, especially for the graduate population, potentially staying online. So, um, but, you know, that's been challenging too. So there's a lot of unknown right now, but, uh, you know, trying to stay positive, but it's not easy some days. <laughs> Even things not being easy, probably just institutions trying to make those decisions, you know, in terms of these budget cuts and this budget crisis in terms of do we furlough? What do we do? And yeah, it can't, can't be easy. No, not at all. And then speaking in terms of COVID-19 and, and cancellations, you were the concurrent session chair for the Nakata Region 9 conference and all the work put into that and, and then that got canceled. But hopefully that was, you know benefited you um, in terms of having that experience. And we were actually supposed to record your interview at the conference. And then, of course, we had to postpone that. But I'm glad it finally worked out to do this um, and, and finally get this scheduled. But speaking of Nakata, can you talk about your involvement in Nakata, like when that started and kind of 
things that you, you, you've been able to do or learn from being a Nakata member? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, Nakata, I didn't really know that much about it till um, it's kind of a random thing where, you know, when I um, started to, I started working with like doing advising. I've been working in higher ed for longer, you know, for since 2012, but I, I didn't really start advising students till about, uh, I want to say 20, yeah, 2014. And in 2016, I was like, you know, my, my boss was like, well, you have some professional development funds and, uh, you know, why don't you try to go to a conference? So I was like doing some Google searching and, uh, you know, I was like looking for conferences and Nakata had their region nine conference. It was at USC that year. It was hosted by Brandman, but it was at, uh, you know, at USC. So, you know, USC is not that far from LMU. And, um, I was like, well, this is a great opportunity to, you know, maybe why don't I go check this out? So I literally went and, uh, that first conference didn't know anyone. I was the only person from LMU that was even there. I mean, not that we have a huge campus to begin with. So we're not like comparable to like the UCs and the Cal States um, here in California. But still, though, you know, I was kind of like didn't really my first conference I ever went to, period, really. So, you know, it was a little intimidating and, uh, you know, just did that. I took the subway or the metro, as we call it here in L.A. and, you know, went to, you know, didn't stay at a hotel or anything, just came into, into L.A., you know, um, to, to downtown where USC is and, you know, went to the conference. And uh, that's actually where I met you for the first time. You know, I, I went to, I think it was either the first or second session I ever went to for Nakata was you were doing a presentation on a concurrent session on, I believe, um, Instagram. So I that, that just kind of was like, worked out kind of uh, funny in that sense. So I, you know, hopefully enjoyed that presentation. Yeah, I think I, you know, I thought it was pretty good. I remember um, it being okay. positive and one of the better ones I went to uh, at that conference. Um, definitely. Um <laughs> And uh, so, um, you know, it did that. And, you know, then the first year is just kind of like I said, just kind of like, oh, you know, just kind of went to the conference, went home, didn't really network that well. You know, definitely could have done a little things a little bit differently. I mean, in retrospect, but um, the next year, though, that was in Reno. So um, I started to get a little bit more involved in, um, you know, um, in a sense where I like tried to, you know, interact with some more people. You know, I got to know you a little bit better, for example. And, um I, you know, met some other people there as well. And then um, and also some other LMU um, colleagues went that year too, which was great because I kind of started to be like, hey, you know, I went to this conference on academic advising, you know, this or, there's an organization, Nakata, you know, maybe, you know, it'd be good to have a group of people go so we can, you know, bring back some, you know, best practices and all that. And that conference actually, Areno was where the advising collaborative um, got started um, in the sense where, there was two presentations. Actually, one of them was by you again. <laughs> so uh, I went to a presentation from Cal State San Bernardino. And then I also went to a one by uh, UC Davis. And both on these both these presentations are talking about these advising groups that were happening on their campuses and like how they were getting advisors together. And, you know, it really just um, made me think about what can I do at LMU? And one of my other advising colleagues that was at that conference felt pretty similar. So, you know, we started to work on this um, advising collaborative, what, what ended up being the advising collaborative at LMU. And, um, you know, that was in uh, that summer of 2017, we started working on it. And then, you know, we had our first meeting in the fall of uh, 2017. So that kind of was pretty instrumental in my um, career and my development as an advisor, you know, that conference. So that, that's a classic example of, of, of going to a conference and learning something that you think you can apply to your own institution and actually bringing it back. 
And, uh, you know, we're obviously now, you know, it's, I don't know if we're going to talk about the divide and the collaborative more later, so I can maybe hold on to this thought later on. But I mean, that's obviously developed a lot over the last three years. I mean, baby steps, we were not like perfect by any means, and it, it ebbs and flows. But, uh, but that was kind of how that so that was that conference. And then 2018 was when we, uh, I, you know, I started to get even more involved where I started to do proposal readings. And, you know, I um, was trying to figure out ways to even, um, you know, present, which didn't work out that year. But I still was, you know, thinking of a start thinking more about that rather than go basically transitioning from just an attendee to being more active in the organization and figuring out other ways where I can grow, um, you know, again, as an advisor. So, you know, I did proposal readings um, for that year. And then, you know, obviously the following that was in Santa Rosa. And then the following year where we um, I believe we're at now. So actually. No, the last, you know, the previous, that, that year was Hawaii. So then, yeah, I did proposal reading again. And then, of course, it led to, you know, where I was, um, you know, I asked you if you want, you know, if you needed help with uh, the 2020 conference, which, yes, sadly did get, um, you know, canceled, but uh, obviously for valid reasons, where, you know, um, did the concurrent sessions chair, which was an amazing opportunity. And th- that's, that's something I would recommend anyone, you know, try to do if, if um, they're able to have the time to do it is, you know, to serve on the committee because they're really opened my eyes to how much hard work it takes to not only organize a conference, but also as the concurrent sessions chair, I was able to see um, how hard people work with proposals and, you know, um, and submitting those and writing really well thought out, um, you know, uh, submissions. And uh, that's what made it kind of hard for me on a personal level that it got canceled because I saw how much hard work got put into it from so many people. And, um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've tried to do some other things. I did a book review also, in addition to some of the conferences. I did a book review this past year for Nakata, which is also a great opportunity if you want to do more scholarly uh, writing. Um, you know, it did also uh, proposal reading for awards now, in addition to concurrent sessions. And um, and then I'm also just recently found out I'm on the um, advisory board for the um, webinars or the web events. I forget the exact title now off the top of my head, but uh so looking forward to starting that this fall. So yeah, a lot going on uh, with Nakata, but you know, trying to get more involved. I've still got ways to go compared to you and Colm, of course. But uh, you know, it's uh, it's a start though. I think you've shown great involvement. I think the fact that you know you went to what your your kind of second conference and you brought um, the idea for the advising collaborative back. Uh, I think that's exactly what we're all endeavor to do from a conference is, is to find that acorn and to bring it back and for you to kind of nurture and develop it. But um, Mike, maybe we'll dig into a little bit you you talked about how you had worked in higher ed before moving into advising so i suppose um for listeners what was it that that drew you to advising was it something you wanted to move into was it something that you you fell into or how did it all come about yeah well i'm definitely in the camp of uh fell into advising by accident fell into higher ed by accident had no intention to work in education or higher education or anything along those lines when i was younger um you know uh I'll try not to spend too much time on this because it's kind of a little bit of a longer story because there's a lot of dots being connected as I go through this journey of how I got to to advising in higher ed. But, you know, like I obviously, as as Matt read in my bio, you know, I I had my BFAs in film production. So when, you know, when I was in high school and, um, and even in college, you know, my, my goal was to work in the film industry. So, you know, being from Massachusetts, I 
my goal was always to come out to California and work in the film industry. So, um, you know, average student didn't have a ton of support, you know, um, at the high school that I was at in the sense where my school council was super supportive of the idea. I thought I was a little crazy. Like, why are you going to California or we're doing all this? So, but, um, I was determined and, uh, I actually, because of, you know, again, I wasn't like a rock star student in a sense and, and, you know, film production on many universities is like one of the hardest majors to get into. I actually like, uh, was rejected by almost every film school in California, including LMU where I work now, which is kind of funny. Um, but um, I don't take it personal. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I spent a year of college at, uh, at a state school in Massachusetts, worked really hard, got my GPA up, transferred, got into Chapman University, um, which is one of the best film schools in the world, and um, had an amazing time three years there. I mean, for example, like, you know, I worked with, um, you know, the, I, I knew the Duffer Brothers who's created Stranger Things. I worked on films with them. Um, you know, uh, some of my other friends have done some amazing work writing for TV. And, uh, you know, um, a couple, one of my friends from college has done, written some Disney, wrote Lady in the Tramp from uh, on Disney Plus recently. So stuff. So, you know, they're doing some amazing things. So I had a, a great time. And a lot of my friends are from, uh, still to this day, were from those years at Chapman. And, um, but anyway, I ended up, uh, graduating, started to work in the film industry. I got a job at a management company where I was, you know, representing like writers, directors, actors, you know, um, kind of similar to an agency um, in a sense. And uh, it's just a really negative experience for me on a lot of levels, you know, really didn't like the person that I was becoming or the people I was working with, you know, a lot of yelling, a lot of bad things that were being said that I can't repeat on this podcast. But uh you know, I was just like, maybe I need to just do something else because I'm just going to burn out and I'm just not going to be happy with the life that I'm going to create if I keep doing this. And, you know, I also just didn't have a lot of good mentors in my life at that point either, where I had people that could really, you know, help me in, in that regard. Um, so I just thought about, you know, like, what could I do maybe that would be more fulfilling? And I thought about looking at the helping professions and I was like, maybe I'll go back to school to originally become a school counselor, actually, to work in like a high school. And I... um you know, looked at some different programs and I eventually, uh, applied to LMU and, 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 you know, um, started there, um, you know, got into the school counseling program to become, you know, again, a school counselor. But when I started doing that, I also was realizing that, you know, maybe working in a K-12 school wasn't the best fit for me either. So I was like, maybe I should turn my attention more to like higher ed or nonprofit work or something along those lines. So that's kind of how I shifted my focus that way. And um, I didn't really know what I was going to do when I was finishing up my master's because I was like, well, I don't really have anything lined up. And but like a job opened up at LMU um, as like an administrative coordinator, which is, you know, doing more, you know, administrative support work and all that. So, again, not really advising related. But I was like, well, this at least gets my foot in the door. So I was like, why don't I do this? So I ended up getting that job you know, did that for a couple of years, started building relationships on campus, started working my way up. And I eventually was offered an opportunity to work in the Center for Undergraduate Teacher Preparation in 2014, which was like as, a, as the assistant director. And that was like a hybrid role where it had some administration work, but it also had advising as part of my portfolio. So that's kind of how I ended up starting advising students. And I did that role for about five years and then due to some restructuring, unfortunately, I was I had a transition out of that role. But um, and that's how I'm now working also with the graduate students. But, you know, it's it was really just a, a journey of of me not having a, a really I mean, 
I had a plan, but it didn't really work out. So I had plan B and, and I just thought about some things that I could do to maybe like have a more fulfilling life. And, you know, I'm very happy with where I'm at. I mean, I still love filmmaking. Um, I still do a lot of film work, like Matt mentioned in my bio too, with Venice Arts. But, um, you know, obviously very happy working with students and, and advising them uh, today. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we're going to definitely get to the, the graduate students, the students you work with right now, and also talk about more about the advising collaborative. But kind of going back to, to Chapman, I mean, yeah, there's a school to go to for filmmaking. That That's the place. I mean, and then Chapman's also been <laughs> in, in in movies like, I think, like American Wedding and uh, Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Um, oh, yeah. Crimson Tide, I think it was there's was a a shot in there yes, for that one there is a really good movie you know you're a movie trivia there for knowing that <laughs> well uh richard teaches me very well with that stuff so <laughs> but um uh, also no doubt um uh, the band the tragic kingdom album actually had uh some of their photos that were in that album are taken on the streets like near chapman so you were talking about um uh, the teacher uh, working with undergrad students for the teacher preparation and i know um we were emailing because i saw there was a newsletter um, that i found with loyola marymount university's i guess a collaboration with el camino college called teach el camino and i saw a quote in there from you and so um, so that one was talking about like the hope of that collaboration you were saying was to streamline the process to make it easy for students to not only transfer from El Camino College to LMU, but also to allow students to finish their major requirements and preliminary uh, teaching requirements in four years. And your goal is to create a teacher preparation pipeline of students pursuing careers in elementary, secondary, bilingual and special education. Um, can you talk briefly about that? how that collaboration started? Yeah. So, I mean, the Center for Undergraduate Teacher Preparation at LMU, I mean, we're really like, uh, it still exists and it just looks a little bit different um, than when I was was there. And I mean, so, and I still obviously work with the undergrad, so I'm still tied into it um, in a sense, but mm -hmm. we, you know, we, um, we support undergrads on campus that are earning, that want to earn a teaching credential because at LMU, we can, a student can earn their teaching credential in four years. So you can get a BA in a preliminary teaching credential in that time period. Um, it's a lot of work though, obviously. So that's why um, we started to look at some other um, ways to make it a little bit easier. Uh, particularly that example is, you know, for the t transfer population, because what we find is, uh, you know, to spend say two years at a community college and then come to LMU and try to finish everything in two years, um, it's extremely difficult with the, with the credential component. So that partnership actually happened due to the fact that we got a we got a grant through the Commission on Teaching Credentialing in California, um, and uh, this grant uh, had a lot of different components in it. But one of them was to create a two plus two program, and a two plus two obviously meaning like two years at community college and then two years at a you know four year institution. So um, El Camino was the first school that we um, we started to, to do this with, and. Um, at the moment, it's still the only school, but, you know, we're obviously hoping to expand that at some point. Um, we'll see. But, uh, yeah, the idea was that we would build, like, um, we'd worked with the counselors over at El Camino, and, you know, we have our articulation agreements, um, you know, really um, cleaned up and really strong where students can really, if they know when they go into El Camino that they want to come to LMU, they know exactly what coursework they can take, and then they can transfer and maximize as many units as possible when they do transfer at LMU, ideally in two years, you know, if possible. So, um, 
you know, that's just a way that we're trying to address also the teacher shortage because in California and really nationally, there's a shortage of teachers. And I think, you know, one thing, I mean, I don't want this to be taken out of context in a sense, but one positive of the uh, COVID-19 is I think a lot of people realize how hard teaching is and how important teachers are because the many parents, of course, are, you know, teaching now at home and they're like, oh, my God, how do people do this all day? Um, so, you know, like it's really, um, you know, that, that that's, um, you know, just one way for us. I mean, obviously, we started this way before the pandemic, but that, that was one way for us to say, like, how are we going to address the shortage and get people into this profession and, you know, um, we're going to try to make it a little bit easier because what was happening when we first, um, when my boss and I, we both kind of came into the center around the same time, we were finding that like students were taking sometimes, you know, five years to finish everything or, you know, sometimes even longer. And, and, and that's, you know, that's not ideal for anyone because one, it prevents people from entering the field to teach. And also it's more expensive because, you know, um, you're paying basically an extra year of tuition potentially, or even an extra semester is a lot of money. I mean, LMU um, as a private institution, you know, our tuition is not, uh, you know, it's not super affordable. I mean, it's not, you know, it is what it is, but uh, so, you know, we're, we're trying to be mindful of all those considerations, but, but yeah, I mean, that's something that, you know, it's, they were really excited about it, El Camino and, um, you know, we've had some students that are definitely that are over there now that want to come to LMU and, and, and participate in this program. So, you know, we hope it, uh, you know, continues to grow and, and gets better. Mike, you mentioned that you work with both undergrad students and postgraduate students or grad, as we as we call them in, in Ireland, but grad students, I suppose. Do you see differences um, between the, those cohorts and, and different needs or, or different approaches that you take between the cohorts? I mean, yeah, there is. There's definitely some differences for sure. I mean, there's some similarities. I mean, it's interesting because sometimes, you know, like if I line them all up, you wouldn't know the difference between who's an undergrad and a grad. Right. But, you know, at the same time, they're they're at different points in their lives. I mean, um, I'm not basing this on any research at the moment, too, just to be clear. I'm just basing it on my own personal experiences. But um, and I've also one other thing is I've only been working with the grads like for about, you know, what's it about six months now. So, you know, I, I don't have as much experience with them. But I mean, what I've seen, though, definitely, I mean, um, you know, the grad students there, you know, many of them are either coming back as a second career or after a gap of, um, you know, sometimes five years or longer to, you know, earn an advanced degree. Um, you know, some of them are married and they have kids. Um, you know, some of them are, you know, maybe have gone through a divorce. They're, you know, a single parent. Um, you know, some of them are working full time. So there's a lot of other challenges, which of course, now let me just also be clear, undergraduates can have those, you know, uh, characteristics as well. I mean, so I'm not trying to be naive in that sense either, but, um, you know, but where my, most of my undergrads, or at least I work with at LMU, most of them are 18 to 22 and most of them are, you know, living independently for the first time, or, you know, maybe working on campus and all that as a work study student, but not working, um, you know, full time or anything. So, I mean, those differences, I mean, it's, it's a little bit challenging, but at the same time, my, my advising philosophy, I wouldn't say it changes too much between the different demographics of the different groups. I mean, I still approach every meeting the same way. I mean, I just kind of let the conversation or what we need to talk about, let it, you know, kind of develop. But I, I don't like say like, oh, you're a grad. I'm not going to talk to you about this or that because, you know, you're older and you might know more. I mean, or because sometimes they don't or vice versa. Right. So, um, but I definitely, though, keep some of that stuff into consideration, though, like when I meet, if they share with me certain things, I mean, because I always like to remind the grads, well, yeah, like, you know, like they'll say, well, I want to take all these, 
like say like for example if they want to take uh nine units or or three courses which is a pretty full load for a grad student they'll be like well i i took 15 or 18 units when i was an undergrad and i was like well what were your circumstances when you were an undergrad you know they you were probably different right are you working full-time right now do you have a family do you you know what just you need to make sure you you have a balance and you know you, you can't compare them exactly the same. So like, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I have to have those conversations, but the, the transitions though, that they deal with though, going, whether you're an undergrad going from high school or college to, or to under, from high school to undergrad or from, or from like undergrad or, um, to grad, I mean, they're still exist and they're still challenging in different ways. I mean, it's just the context of it, but, well, like I, I already said though, the, my advising philosophy and how I work with students, I, I try to keep it sim- the same because that's just, that's just who I am as an advisor. So I don't want to like change myself too much based on the population. But I also, though, do like to try to be aware of, of there because there are some differences. I mean, we'd be lying if there isn't. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Kind of going along with things at LMU that that groups you've worked with, uh, you've also worked with the First to Go program. Um, can you talk more about how that started and what that program is, and is is it still around today? Yeah, so the First to Go program that basically is a program for first first generation students at LMU. Um, so it's whoever ident- you know, obviously they self identifying first generation student, meaning you know that their their parents you know didn't graduate from college, so. Um, they, uh, that's a program that got started in, um, I should know this, but it's 2010, I believe. Um, and so, I mean, they're at, we're at, yeah, they're at 10 years, I believe. Yeah. So, um, it's, uh, was started, um, it's really a program that's really on the sense nationally, that's, I know a lot of other institutions have also modeled after, um, because it's, it's a way to help them with the transition from going from, you know, high school to college and, and not having anyone, not having that context and that support of, you know, my parents went and, you know, or helping them deal with whether it's imposter syndrome or, you know, not feeling like they belong on the campus or, um, or just having difficulty not knowing where to go. Like, you know, where do I go to, you know, buy textbooks or where do I go to, to help, um, you know, get writing support. So, you know, the, they they basically just it's a support system and uh there's a lot of different components within the first to go umbrella um you know they have like a scholars program where they take some courses together their first year they have um a journal where students are able to you know submit writing or you know whether it's poems or prose of you know things that they want to you know publish um they uh they have you know panels where they have people talk you know whether it's faculty and staff or or other students that are maybe older talk about some of their experiences um and uh you know they also have a mentoring program that was really where it started it was a mentoring program where it's basically um you know faculty and staff who identified as first generation they mentor um 
you know, current LME students. And it's really just an extra support system for them to, um, again, for a student to have someone on campus that they can go to for any questions. And I've been really fortunate where I, I've mentored two students over the years. Um, and, uh, you know, they've been really positive experience where, you know, I've been able to kind of just like, you know, help them with different things. I, you know, we would go out to lunch, like, you know, once a month or, you know, every couple months, um, just check in. Um, it's actually kind of cool too, because the second student, my second mentee that I, I had actually ended up getting a job at LMU recently. So, uh, you know, we've been able to have another relationship in the sense where now I've kind of mentoring him as a staff member in a way, which is pretty, um, pretty cool. And, um, you know, so we'll touch base here and there, um, on different things, but, uh, yeah, it's really just a support system for the students in a way for first generation students to feel supported and included on the campus because it's, you know, first gen, you know, it's one of those, those categories where it's really a lot of it's self-identifying. I mean, it's not like an ethnicity or, you know, even socioeconomic status. I mean, you can be, you know, anyone can be a first gen student. I mean, I'm, I'm a first gen student and, you know, like, you know, you'd be like, oh, well, you know, it's not like you don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to act a certain way to be first gen. So it's, you know, it's a group that I'm really proud of that identification for myself. I mean, it's not one that I really even identified with till actually like I got to LMU. So like I wasn't, when I, when I was an undergrad, I never was like, oh, I'm a first generation student. Um, you know, it's, it wasn't something I thought about much, but I mean, now it's something that I'm very proud of because, you know, my parents, you know, they, they had a great life and, you know, they, they you know, they gave us, my sister and I a great life, um, but they, um, you know, they just worked regular jobs and, you know, that were, those are the days where you didn't have to go to college to, you know, it, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, um, but, uh, you know, I'm proud that I was able to do that. And my sister, of course, went to college as well. So, you know, I know my parents are, you know, still to this day proud of the both of us. So, um, but yeah, I, I love being first gen and I love first gen students. I think you can be justifiably proud. And I think you, you talk there about like not, not having it, um, when you're an undergrad, but it coming later now that you're at LMU. But I suppose you've also done the EDD program and you now have your doctorate. So can you talk a little bit about, um, your, your doctoral research and I suppose how you feel that's maybe aided your career? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, my EDD, it's crazy that it was, uh, I got, I graduated two years ago. I finished, I just, my anniversary of defending was, I think about like a week ago. So, um, you know, like, I mean like two, two years ago, but like the weekend, the anniversary is a week ago. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, um, so my, my dissertation, I mean, I did it on first generation students actually. And, and, um, you know, I, I looked at, you know, mentoring first generation students and their transition from, you know, um, going from high school to a, you know, post-secondary institution and, and just seeing how, you know, faculty and staff could support them. I mean, uh, you know, during that transition and into the institution and help them be academically successful in, 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 um, in that regard. So I, uh, you know, the really looked at the shared identity aspect of, of being first gen and how first generation students, they really, um, you know, connected to having, or someone or knowing someone that was also first generation that had successful experiences and, and, you know, was in, was able to kind of like do a lot of what they're aspiring to do. So, I mean, it's, um, that was kind of what I was looking at. I mean, I did like a case study, you know, looking at, you know, a, a group of students as they transitioned in and how they had that support from, from faculty and staff, you know, uh, mentors and in, in regards to their transition, um, you know, to the institution. So, um, you know, the, 
the research was definitely, it was, it was an interesting process. I mean, it's, I, you know, getting an EDD, it's definitely not impossible to do. I mean, I always tell that to people now I'm not trying to downplay it cause it's, it's still one of the proudest things I've ever done, <laughs> but um, you know, it's, it's also like, you know, something that um, definitely is uh, a, a worthwhile experience. And I mean, it's, um, you know, my boss at the, you know, at the, when I started working in the center for undergraduate teacher preparation, I'll never forget. Like one of my first, we went out to the lunch shortly after I started working there. And she was like, you know, just because, you know, you have an MA now, but you know, you've had an MA for a couple of years, but just so you know, you're never going to move up further if you, uh, if you have just an MA. And I was like, well, geez, I mean, talk about putting pressure on me. So, um, so, you know, and, and I, it, and, and I literally, you know, um, yeah, like, I think, yeah, I, I actually like literally applied like a couple months later <laughs> to USC and, um, and then the rest is history in that sense. But, uh, you know, but I always credit her, though, and she was on my dissertation committee. Uh, that's an, Annette Hernandez. I will I'll call her out on the podcast in case she's listening. But, um, you know, she was an incredible mentor to me during that process and during that time and still is to this day as well. So, um, but yeah, my, uh, you know, I haven't done any really further research since my dissertation and, and my I finished my doctorate. I mean, I like to think I will one day again, but um, you know, I, I just needed a bit of a break because I was pretty exhausted uh, at the end of those three years. Oh, I can imagine. Um, but I don't think your, your answer, I don't think you're downplaying it at all. I, but I think it's, it's great advice to say it like that, because I think folks might think that, oh, that's not for me, or I'm not good enough for it. And it's like, no, I mean, you can go for it. But you mentioned like your mentor. And, and I think in your bio, we see a lot, we see a theme of mentorship. You know, you talk about being first gen, you've talked about uh, the first to go program, mentoring to mentees. Um, you've also been part of alternative breaks. Um, you're also very involved in Venice Arts. Um, so clearly for you, this this is a passion uh, to work with with others. With alternative breaks, how did you get involved in that and doing these trips uh, to Cuba, Guatemala? What 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 have you gained from your trips with students? Yeah, well. Um... Mentoring definitely is, 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 is definitely probably my greatest passion in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, definitely hit that spot on in that regard for sure. Um, I think a lot of ways, I mean, not to, I'll answer your question in a minute here, but I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, I didn't really have a lot of mentors growing up. I mean, you know, obviously my parents and my family, but I mean, I didn't have someone outside of that bubble. Um, you know, and maybe my life would have been different if I did. I don't know. Um, I'm not, mad or anything about where my life is just to be clear but that's just kind of the reality um but uh but yeah like so anytime i get an opportunity to try to mentor someone if you know obviously you can't force a mentorship on someone but if someone you know if you build a relationship and you're able to develop that it's always a very fulfilling one and yeah alternative breaks that was another opportunity where just lmu you know we're very big into service and you know um you know, community, um, learning and, um, and really just, you know, um, social justice and really getting to understand the world in a lot of ways. So, um, we, you know, that, that's a program they do where it's like outside of like, say a traditional spring break where, you know, you go to like somewhere fun, tropical to have a party all week. LMU is like, wait a second, we're going to rethink this and we're going to bring, we're going to have send a groups of students to these different places around the world and domestically to to learn about different issues and see how you bring them back to your own community. I mean, so we're not trying to change the world when we go there, but it's really just to try to understand that. Um, so they they're all student led trips too, which is great. So like you know they um 
the trips are, you know, the st- the faculty staff uh, leaders, we just basically support the student leaders and, and the students on the trip. So, you don't, I, luckily, I don't have to do as much work, but it's also, though, I have to make sure the students are obviously supported in that sense. But yeah, those trips, I mean, they've, it's, it just allowed me to see the world through a different lens because, you know, we, we don't stay at hotels when we're there. We stay, you know, local community, you know, whether it's nonprofit or, you know, community agencies. Um, and, you know, uh, we, we work all day. It's not fun necessarily, um, but it's very fulfilling. It's very exhausting, but it's a very life changing. And, you know, like getting to meet some of the people down in both of those countries, it's changed my life, um, for, you know, really forever. And uh, it's uh, something that is very unique to LMU because, um, again, I think it's really because of where it's such a mission driven institution. But, uh, yeah, it's it just was something that I was like, I really want to try to do this. This seems really interesting and really something that I could really challenge challenge myself with. And, um, yeah, I've done it uh, in 2018 and 2019. I took this year off, but it would have probably been canceled anyway, unfortunately. But I definitely hope to, to participate more in the future. Yeah, it sounds like a, a really interesting program. Uh, and and you, you've any number of interesting programs that you're involved in. And, and one of the things that we touched on a little bit earlier, and I think for listeners, they'd, they'd probably be interested in hearing a little bit more. We heard about the spark for the advising collaborative. It was it came from being at the Nakata conference. But can you talk about how you brought it back to campus and developed it? Because I think that's, um, you know, something that everyone wants it aims to do when they come back from a conference is because we, you know, there can, it can spark lots of ideas, but how did you develop it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it definitely, it took a little time for sure. I mean, we, um, so when we got back from the conference, you know, we did a little bit of a lull period, of course, but we started to work on it that summer. And, um, you know, we really just a group of us that identified that we wanted to, 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 to start this, you know, we started to meet and uh, come up with some ideas and figure out how, you know, how are we going to get everyone to the table? Because, you know, when you're, we have a decentralized advising campus in the sense where, you know, all the different schools and colleges more or less do their own thing. I mean, there's some offices that are, you know, more centralized, I guess, like, you know, like athletics, for example, or we do have an academic resource center, but I mean, but a lot of the advising's, you know, by college or, you know, school and college. Um, But we, um, we started to, you know, talk about how we wanted to do this. And we decided that let's call a meeting. Let's reach out to all these advisors individually. Let's see if we can get them to the table. And, um, you know, so we had our, you know, the first meeting in the fall of uh, 2017. And, um, you know, we actually, it's kind of was interesting because we had a huge turnout that first meeting and we got all excited kind of naively in a sense. And then, you know, we kind of got back to reality because as we started to do more meetings, we started to see the attendance dwindle. So it was like this kind of like challenge of how do we get people to stay at the table? It's like, oh, they come once, that's fine. But how do you have that like, you know, um, you know, continuity, I guess, in a sense. Um, so, you know, that's why it's kind of like, I think I mentioned this earlier, like it's kind of ebbs and flows in regards to how we've, some meetings have been well attended, some haven't been. But what we started to realize was we were originally doing this kind of on our own. And we were like, we need more institutional support. So we said, well, you know, let's try to, what's some other ways to do this? So we like, so we ended up going to the provost. Um, we got the university registrar involved. And then, you know, we also started to, you know, talk to um, some other offices, um, you know, study abroad and, and you know, um, you know, et cetera. So we, that that was kind of a big thing for us, but I mean, obviously it was, you know, a little bit more challenging because it's kind of like, not that it's like something like, oh, I, co-founded this and but it's like you know if i give it to the provost office like what are they going to do with it right so but i will give 
the provost a ton of credit because he's been extremely supportive with this initiative. And we now uh, work more closely with the associate provost um, of undergraduate education. Um, and he's been also phenomenal. So um, and the university registrar has been great. She, you know, um, we've worked with two of them now. We have a new one. And uh, both of them, you know, suspend the meetings and, um, you know, have provided us different information and updates and all that. So that was a big thing, too, of like, you know, just realizing that you can't keep it too close. You got to kind of, you know, let it, um, you know, you need that institutional support. And because, you know, I was really nervous about that, to be honest, when we I, we first started doing that. But um, but, you know, at the same time, you know, um, my goal is to it will go on beyond my time at LMU or, you know, or eventually, you know, like there'll be other people, I think, you know, leading it in that sense. So I, I it's not my group that I started. I just was the one that kind of got it going. Um, but, um, you know, that was, it, you know, it's, but it's, yeah, it's been challenging. It's not really where we want it to be. It's still something that it's an initiative that, you know, it's three years in now. And I, I think I would have liked it to have been a little bit um, stronger, but I mean, it's just, you have to be realistic too, though, because you, you're really doing a cultural change too at the institution where you're getting all these advisors now to like, do to be part of this group. And, and how do you get that buy-in? How do you continue to get that buy-in? So, I mean, I'm still very optimistic about it. It's still the proudest thing I've ever done at LMU. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope that it continues, like I said, well beyond, uh, you know, my time, which I'm not planning to leave LMU anytime soon, just to be clear, but, but I mean, <laughs> but yeah, but that's kind of, but that's my goal though, at least. Oh yeah. I mean, all of that's like a work in progress and I definitely feel you on the, you know, get super excited that first meeting because it's something new. So people want to know what's going on. So let, let's join in and see. And then work happens, life happens, priorities change, things like that. And so, yeah, it's definitely ebbs and flows in terms of attendance and, and all of that. But initially, a lot of times to get that into institutional support, institution needs to know like, hey, what is actually going on? And is it quote unquote working before they're going to back it? So it really does take, you know, that one or two or a few people to really kind of initiate it and put the work in and the time in. And that's essentially, you know, what what you did. Now, you still um, do are so involved in Venice Arts um, and, again, mentoring, uh, but in this case, uh, for uh, youth and filmmaking. So I know, you know, you kind of talked about your background going to Chapman and kind of like the experiences that, that you had in, in the industry, but yet you still do uh, filmmaking now. Um, is that more because as, you know, this mentor type role, it, it's your way of giving back in, in this kind of industry? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I'll always love filmmaking till I'm, you know, till I die basically. <laughs> um, you know, mm. it's, it's just something, and, and you know, like I always also think like, just because you're not doing something day to day and getting a paycheck from it doesn't mean it's a, it's a passion or, or, or it's a huge part of your mm. life. And I mean, so I mean, uh, that, that's a way that organization I actually found through LMU, oddly enough. And, um, they were at like some job fair, you know, 10 years ago. And I was like, well, I have a filmmaking background, you know, and I, maybe this is a good way to do some volunteer work while I'm getting my master's degree. I never thought I'd still be doing it though, to this day, to be honest. I mean, it's just, it's just been a perfect match where the, the organization and I have just, we've just clicked so well and, and, and they've been so great to me. You know, the executive director, Lynn Wachewski has been, you know, um, a, another mentor to me. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's, so it's, it's a way for me every Saturday, I basically for a few hours, every Saturday, I go to Venice Arts, the gallery, um, and I'll, I'll mentor kids on, you know, we make films, um, whether it's documentaries or narratives and, you know, we teach them all about, you know, whether it's pre-production, production, production 
and post-production. So, you know, we're having them edit on Adobe Premiere. We're having them shoot with, you know, DSLRs where, you know, having them do storyboarding and script writing, you know, we do it all. And, um, and these kids are like, mo- mostly right now I work with 10 to 13 year olds. So like, and, and, and Venice Arts serves generally a low income population. That's what our mission is. So, you know, a lot of these kids also don't have access to a lot of this technology. So a lot of times I work with kids who are using a camera for the first time and, and the first film they ever make is with me. And, you know, and, and so that's pretty special. And, you know, um, but, you know, nowadays kids are so, are so tech savvy that, it, you know, it's not that hard to teach them how to do a lot of these things. I mean, you're teaching them how to do professional editing. You would think it would be very difficult. But, I mean, they're just – it's really not, though. <laughs> it's, it's very intuitive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that organization – I mean, I do a lot of other stuff with that organization. We do, like, a college day, so I help them with that. Um, I've, I, you know, help them doing volunteer work with some other development work, like fundraising. So it's just a – an organization I, I dearly love. And, um, you know, and, and like I said, and it really combines my passions of education and filmmaking, you know, into one. And, um, you know, that's something else that I'll probably continue to do as long as I can. Um, cause it's just fun. And I mean, until I stop having fun, I'll probably keep doing it. Your, your passion, I think clearly shines through there for both of those things. But one of the things that jumped out to me from your bio, um, is that you're a marathon runner. Um, and, Personally, I run from danger and towards food. So the idea of actually running 26 miles is an anathema. But tell me, uh, you know, how how did you get into to marathon running and when did you run your last? Yeah, well, marathon, when I was a kid, I just, I'm from Boston, you know, uh, well, I grew up outside of Boston, but I, um, you know, the Boston Marathon is the greatest marathon in the world. And I, you know, every, every year we'd have that marathon Mondays on Patriots Day, which is a state holiday in Massachusetts. So we'd always have the day off from school. And, you know, I basically would just sit down and watch uh, for whatever reason, I used to like watching people run for a few hours and I, I literally would like get super into it. And, you know, like I'd love watching it. And I just always was like, you know, maybe one day I'll do this, but I never thought I would. Cause I was not, I was never an athlete. I'm still really not an athlete. I just happened to run. Um, but I, um, I was like, you know, maybe one day I'll do it. Who knows? But, uh, I was actually finishing up my master's though at LMU. And I was like, well, I don't know if I'm going to have a job and what am I going to do with all my free time now? And like, you know, maybe I'll start running. So like I literally started running when I was in like my mid twenties for the first time, like really well competitively, at least like, well, competitively, like in quotes, um, in, in a sense where I started training for this, I was like, I'm going to run the LA marathon in 2012. So I finished my master's and, you know, and so in 2011, so I was like that fall, I started training and, you know, and then one thing led to another and I ran my that first marathon in, you know, 2012 and I've run, I've run uh, eight marathons now. I actually just ran the LA marathon literally right before the COVID-19 outbreak, which in retrospect probably wasn't a good idea. Um, But um, like literally like everything shut down like days later, like they were talking leading up to the marathon, like should LA really run this marathon? I don't know. Um, But they were, they, they kept, they did it anyway. And um, I haven't heard any huge outbreaks from that. So they got really lucky. Um, But uh, yeah, I ran the last one, you know, this year and um, I actually already signed up at the expo for next year's marathon. So we'll see how that plays out because uh, I have a number of races I'm running in the next year, so I don't know how they're going to do all that stuff with the uh, this, you know, the pandemic. And because um, obviously now I don't think I would run it, um, but uh, but yeah, it's something that I do. It helps me stay in shape a little bit. It, you know, it's also good for my mind sometimes if I'm having a bad day or something, I'll go for a run and just try to clear my mind and my head. Um, but yeah, it's just a 
you know, another thing that I like to do. I like to try to stay busy. Well, the last uh, marathon that you ran, I mean, during that particular time, it was a lot more questions than answers <laughs> regarding COVID-19. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was a huge debate. Do we cancel it? Do we keep it? What do we do? Let's just go ahead and keep. Everyone's already signed up. <laughs> Pretty much. That's what happened. <laughs> and as we wrap up uh, the interview, uh, w- one interest that, that we share is our love for professional wrestling. And uh, one of my best memories is we got to go to the Sable Center to go to uh, one of the uh, WWE NXT uh, pay-per-views, uh, which was a lot of fun. Where did uh, wrestling, has that been something uh, that you've been interested in and liked watching for years, like as a kid or how that all come about? Yeah, wrestling, that's something that my family uh, loved. I mean, so I grew up wrestling. I mean, there's, I have this baby pictures of me with like holding Hulk Hogan dolls in like the eighties, you know, like, you know, like I have like action figures, like my dad's like holding them up next to me. Um, so like I was, you know, my parents are both into it. You know, my, my sister's into it. I mean, I mean, I just grew up watching it. I mean, and, uh, you know, well, way before it was popular in the late nineties when they had their big boom with stone cold and all that. And, uh, you know, and then I've, I, but I've, I've just, continue to watch it to this day i mean i know sometimes people look at me funny they're like you watch wrestling like it's kind of like don't you're a little old for that but i'm like hey you know it's fun um you're never too old <laughs> I, I i agree i mean but it's yeah it's just something you know it's a guilty pleasure i guess i mean you know it's um i've been to four wrestlemanias uh, hoping to go to i was hoping to go to next year's wrestlemania i was hoping actually you were going to join me and you know we we're going to have a group get together or maybe we still will yep. but um because you know it's supposed to be in la um in 2021 yeah. so um but we'll see again how that plays out but mm-hmm. uh but yeah it's fun and yeah that I, that, that pay-per-view that we went to with nxt that was uh that was a blast and you know that was a great like war games match and uh some other good cards uh, some other good matches on that card too i if i remember correctly and like I said, WrestleMania, I'll probably go to if, if they still have it and it's safe. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll still watch it, you know, here and there. I don't watch it like as much as I probably used to, but I'll still watch pay-per-views and, you know, try to stay, in, you know, up to date on what's going on. But, uh, yeah, it's fun. And I know I forget exactly how we found out we both like wrestling, but that is something that we do definitely share in common. And I know we've had a lot of great conversations about that over the years. So, so as you were talking, I was, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, when, when did that happen? You know, because I know... I know you went to one of the presentations at, at, at um, USC, but I, I feel like we started really talking um, at Reno in, in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it all started because at the Reno conference, the presentation you went to that Evelyn and I were doing, um, the, our last slide was like, follow us on our uh, advisor social media. And then like, you're like the one person in the room that I think followed us. And and then so when we're at the Region 9 business meeting later that day, you were like sitting behind me. And then I was like, oh, hey, is this you? And then then we started chatting there. And then I think we started following each other like, like a couple weeks after the conference on our personal social media. And then I think it probably so one of us posted something and I was like, oh, okay, you like wrestling too. Uh, here's a funny story. And I don't know if you remember this. I think one of the conversations we had, you're like, yeah, if you're ever in you know the area, let's hit me up. We'll get lunch. And then, so I hit you up and then we went and had lunch. And I remember you saying, I was only halfway joking. I didn't know you were actually going to call me up and have lunch. And then I remember telling, I was like, well, I usually take things literally. So I do remember having lunch that day. Yeah, that was, I know. I don't think I was expecting you to do it either. So, I mean, but it's good though, because I think this is a great example of a, you know, friendship that started at an Akata conference. And, you know, like I, I do consider you a good friend of mine now. And, you know, um, I know, like I said, we, I, I feel like, you know, we've, our friendship extends way beyond advising. Um, 
you know, and uh, I don't look at you just as an advising colleague. I mean, um, you know, so, uh, but yeah, that is, I, that, I do remember that. And yeah, that was funny. <laughs> this has been, I think, really fascinating um, for listeners to to hear i think very inspirational the fact that you have been able to combine the passions that you have and in like find a way to remain involved in filmmaking um and and contribute and give back but also your passion for education your passion for first gen students it all kind of shines through and i think as well you know that that ability to bring back an idea and to to grow and develop and to be prepared to hand it over i think that's what is um you know that's that's how ultimately you really bring other people in is giving the reins over and 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 you know letting letting go a little bit so i think it has been really interesting i think listeners will really enjoy hearing your stories so just want to say thanks for taking the time to to join us yeah thanks colin thanks matt i mean yeah it's great to be invited to this and um you know i really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk and hopefully we'll do it sometime in the future Matt, that interview that we did with Mike was one of the most fun that we have done throughout our adventures in advising series. And there have been some really great interviews, but I enjoyed speaking with Mike a lot. And I hope that listeners enjoyed it as well and took a lot from it. There are a couple of more people to give a shout out to. One is Olivia Miller, who spent last week uh, catching up on all our past episodes during her post-orientation break and she said she enjoyed listening and learning with each episode and also to Anne Bingham from the University of Southampton who was in touch to congratulate us on three and a half thousand downloads and to our colleagues in UCAT, who are a partner organization to NACADA. They too were in touch to say to keep up the good work. And that is something that we intend to do. And hopefully we do so with the next interview, which is with Dr. Keen O'Callaghan from Trinity College Dublin. Keen is somebody I know very well. I went to university with Keen in University College Cork. And though we never actually worked together at Trinity, I had moved on by the, the time I think Keen arrived there. Uh, he I've always admired his work and it was a really great opportunity to get to talk to him about faculty advising and how that is here in Ireland and I suppose working with PhD students and how he supports those students in a supervisory role. So let's hear from Kian right now. All right, so our next guest is Kian O'Callaghan, who is an assistant professor in geography at Trinity College Dublin. Prior to taking up this post, he worked at the Department of Geography at Maynooth University. He holds a PhD in geography from University College Cork. Kian is an urban and cultural geographer whose main research areas include urban political economy, creativity and place, neoliberalism, urban vacancy, and new ruins. 
His recent research has broadly concerned the impacts of Ireland's property bubble and associated crisis, with a particular focus on housing, urban vacancy, and spatial justice. He is currently the PI on an Irish Research Council-funded project focusing on the issue of urban vacancy in Dublin. He teaches across the undergraduate curriculum and currently supervises three PhD students. Since 2017, Kian has been the Discipline Coordinator for Postgraduate Studies in Geography, where he oversees the Program for Postgraduate Research and acts as point of contact for postgraduate students within geography. Since January 2020, he has also been Acting Director for Postgraduate Teaching and Learning for the School of Natural Science. Kian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's nice to uh, have uh, another Cork accent on the podcast. Uh, they have been in short supply, but um, we ha- have a, a couple now in recent times. And obviously, we have another Trinity person uh, in Martin McAndrew on uh, talking about um, grad students or postgrad students, as uh, we uh call them over here but um maybe before we we delve into um some of that stuff kian what might be good is you know i'm i'm obviously uh familiar with you and your work and uh, matt went through some of the stuff in the bio but for listeners i suppose um how how did you come to to work at, at trinity how how did you i suppose get into academia what was it that sparked uh, that interest for you well, it could be kind of a quite a long story i suppose so um <clears throat> as you know obviously colin so we were in college together in um in ucc in cork um doing geography and english i think together as well so i i would have started off with a, a bachelor of arts degree um and i remember at the time actually i picked geography as a kind of last subject of the four kind of took my interest as soon as I kind of started as an undergraduate program and um, really kind of it's a very different subject I suppose to what we were taught in secondary school and um, it was very much something that was kind of really alive I think in terms of understanding the world and particularly kind of some first year lectures really kind of got me sort of hooked on the discipline I guess. Um, I kind of fell into um, a PhD in some ways, and I think that's probably a familiar experience for a lot of, of postgrads or grad students as well. So maybe it'd be something we kind of like talk a little bit about. And um, I guess one of the, the experiences of that is you kind of, you know, end up doing a postgrad before you really know what's going to maybe involved in that. Um, but I kind of obviously don't regret kind of doing that and kind of, uh, did my PhD in UCC as well and kind of focusing on issues of urban regeneration around the Docklands there and the European Capital Culture event. Um, so after I kind of finished up that, I, I, I got a post in uh, Maynooch University as a postdoc position. It would have been in 2008. So I was finishing my PhD kind of on the cusp of the last crisis, we'll say really, you know, and um, so quickly kind of shifted my research, what I thought was, you know, a project on all the future urban redevelopment that was going to happen in Cork to sort of, you know, an aborted or stalled project, you know. Um, so and I, I'd like to kind of say as well, I suppose, that I, I got the last job at the Celtic Tiger in the sense of that kind of one-year position. But um, So I, I spent in the end about eight years in Minute, and that was kind of between a number of sort of different um, contracts and projects. And 
So for a while I was working in uh, NERSA, which would be the National Institute for Regional and Spatial Analysis. That was a, um, a research center within the college. And I, I worked on a kind of number of different projects there, including some of my own kind of funded research, which was on the issue of sort of uh, ghost estates or unfinished developments from the, the crisis. Um, and then I kind of got a position within the geography department, which is a lecturing position. And I uh, was there about three years, I think, um, before I kind of uh, applied for and, and got the job in, in Trinity, which is really kind of focused around my area of, of urban geography. Um, so that's kind of how I landed in Trinity. And that was, would have been 2016. So I'm there since September 2016. So kind of going in three and a bit years. And you were mentioning Celtic Tiger. For those of us that don't know, what, what, is, what does that mean? Um, so Celtic Tiger would be uh, the period of sort of economic growth in Ireland from uh, approximately kind of the early 90s up until the crash in 2007, 2008. Um, and Ireland's economy and culture would have transformed quite considerably during that time. So it would be a period where prior to this, Ireland would have been kind of recognized or known as a sort of one of the poorest nations or as the poorest nation within Europe and kind of like high emigration and all these kinds of things. And during the 1990s, um, what happened, I suppose, essentially is this um, kind of economic miracle in the sense that Ireland managed to kind of reposition itself as this hub for particularly U.S. multinational firms looking for a, a European base um, that transformed the economy, brought in new types of work and things like um, uh, high tech sectors and pharmaceuticals in particular. And that would have transitioned, I suppose, in the early 2000s. You still had that kind of growth based on exports and foreign direct investment. But also what kind of began to grow was a sort of property bubble or construction bubble that kind of came on the back of that. And that would have been the, the second half of the Celtic Tiger, a massive kind of economy based on construction, based on the increasing value of house prices. And that came kind of crashing down then in 2007, 2008, and caused a whole host of problems that we've been dealing with for a decade, I suppose. Um, so Ireland's story is kind of is similar to maybe some of the things that happened in the US, um, with its own kind of inflection in that. Um, and so some of my research work, I suppose, would be around that crash and the impacts of that crash, particularly on the built environment. Yeah, Matt, I think uh, it would be interesting at, at some point uh, to kind of look at Ireland and the impact of the 1990 World Cup and then the changes that took place in Ireland after that, that period of time. There was an American comedian who moved to Ireland named Des Bishop, and he came after Ireland had beaten Romania in a penalty shootout in the World Cup in a match that was shown on both national television stations. We only had two stations in Ireland at the time. It was broadcast live on both. And uh, he arrived, uh, he said, three weeks after we beat Romania, four weeks before we finished celebrating. So that will tell you what that was like. But it kind of from from that, the, the Celtic Tiger grew. And um, Keen has done, I know, uh, kind of a lot of, of research around that. And um, one of the areas, Keen, that um, I know you did work into, and uh, it was always a, an interesting term, was around ghost estates. Uh, and that that wasn't haunted mm -hmm. estates. Uh, can can you talk a little bit about what ghost estates were in an Irish context? Sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so as you're saying, Colin, I suppose the the Celtic Tiger was this period of like cultural transformation as well as sort of economic. So the there's a quote I use in lectures from the novelist John McGarren. It's something like 
Ireland was, you know, the the 19th century up to 1998, and it skipped the 21st century altogether, or skipped the 20th century altogether. Um, so it kind of gives you a sense of some of the kind of the, the cultural transformations that were happening there as well. Um, but in terms of ghost estates, so this is a kind of phenomenon that would have been uh, something that came out of the crash of the property bubble. So ghost estates is a term, it's coined by the economist David McWilliams in the first instance, but it's supposed to refer to these sort of half-built or half-empty housing estates that became a kind of a feature of the landscape in the aftermath of the crash. And what you had, I suppose, during the period of kind of the 2000s up to the crashes, you had a a massive kind of property and construction bubble. So there was a lot of kind of construction happening and being built, but it was also done on a very kind of speculative basis, you know, where there was maybe not populations kind of existing in a lot of parts of rural Ireland in particular, and there's kind of like quite a lot of construction going on. So ghost sites kind of became apparent after the crash in the sense that you had development activity kind of suddenly kind of accumulatively kind of stopping all at once. And therefore you had a lot of these um, estates that were in the process of being built that were sort of, you know, essentially stopped kind of halfway or you'd often have the kind of apparatus of like construction kind of still left over on the site. There's also kind of like a lot of vacancy. So in the aftermath of the crash, there was something in the region of 300,000 vacant housing units and somewhere like 2,900 uh, unfinished estates. This is kind of 2010 that that kind of number is from. But ghost estates, I suppose, in a more kind of cultural sense, they, they became a way to think about the crash and think about the crisis. It became a bit of a symbol of it. So it was something that while, you know, we're getting to grips with the sort of abstract banking crisis, this is something that, you know, is all trying to get our head around in 2008, 2009, where, you know, what's the impact of this? You know, you've got kind of banks going bust in America, you've got people defaulting in their homes. What's the sort of the knock-on effect of this kind of across the Atlantic, let's say? Um and so ghost estates became one of the kind of tangible ways then that the Irish population started, I suppose, to to, to grasp that the, the construction sector and the property sector was kind of in trouble. You know, if there's all these kind of empty houses and they suddenly become more visible in the context that there's no development activity happening. Um, but they came away then to kind of to, to deal with and to sort of narrate the crisis. So there's a couple of different kind of components to that, I suppose, that my work kind of looked at. So in one sense, there's you know, the kind of fact of sort of counting them, you know, for looking at, you know, the, the extent of ghost estates, where they're geographically located, how many of them are there, came a way to kind of sort of quantify the extent of the crisis, you know, so how badly in trouble was, you know, Ireland's property sector, and, you know, by virtue of that, how badly was the economy kind of going to take a hit. But they also had a kind of cultural role then, so I mean, some of the things I've, I've looked at or tried to think about is, how they became a way for the media to think about, you know, the collapse of the Celtic Tiger. So we've been kind of talking a little bit about the the Celtic Tiger as this period of kind of prosperity and also kind of cultural transformation. And it's, you know, Ireland's a a post-colonial nation in the sense that, you know, it's under British rule for a long time. And, you know, that has its own kind of set of kind of hang-ups and like Ireland's kind of kind of unique within Europe as a sort of a post-colony in that kind of sense. So the Celtic Tiger was a period of sort of emerging out from the shadow of that sort of history in in kind of one sense. And the collapse of the Celtic Tiger then had its own kind of psychological sort of impact. So there's a lot of kind of interesting ways in which ghost estates are kind of written about these kind of uh, 
sites where, you know, rather than they're kind of ruins of the past, they're sort of ruins of an abandoned future in the sense that they're the kind of the, the perceptions of the future, the dreams of the future about kind of what kind of life people might be able to live, you know, both in a kind of, you know, maybe grounded sense on these particular states themselves, you know, it's kind of collapsed from under and people are living in, in a ruin essentially. It also kind of became, I suppose, a metaphor then for the broader sort of economic project of the Celtic Tiger in the sense that, you know, there's a sense that Ireland's uh, opportunity to kind of move beyond this kind of post-colonial kind of context, to move beyond the position as a sort of poor neighbour within Europe is then, you know, the rug is pulled from under that as well. And we're kind of living in the context of a sort of the ruins of that. So, um <clears throat> That's kind of like in, in the sense of kind of ghost estates, that's partly kind of the way I've been kind of looking at them, sort of like what are the the kind of, you know, the economic or geographical kind of uh, context to them, what are the sort of political response in terms of, you know, how does the policy apparatus get back to, to resolving them, what does that tell us about how development is going to happen in the future, and then also kind of looking at kind of what are their kind of cultural role in terms of, um, a national imaginary and how a national imaginary deals with a with a crisis, we'll say, and how does how does that crisis become sort of embedded within um, a grounded kind of material reality? Yeah, and a lot of this too was uh, part of a documentary that you were a part of, which was uh, a place where ghosts dwell. Which um, I was watching last night, and it just from a like a film standpoint, it was it was kind of eerie, you know, seeing like these empty buildings, these houses, kind of frozen in time in a sense where you have like the equipment, the crane still there. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, and it kind of ties in also to the piece that you wrote with the haunted landscapes um, where, because it, it was connected also with some photography um, uh, with some of these, uh, these estates, these houses. And you put like as a land, as landscape mm-hmm. photographer, they operate in relation to the stereotypical images of Ireland as, you know, green and ancient. And they depict the struggle over place and narrative characteristic of, the current moment as people engage in complex renegotiations of personal collective history, identity, and purpose in an effort to rediscover what Ireland means. Um, you know, for me, it was like, I see a lot of times where is anything that's really posted about Ireland is just like, oh, look how green it is, or here's this pond, or, you know, th- this this park or whatever, and, you know, or this is how Ireland is all over the place. And it's, you know, then I watch this, I'm like, oh, no, it's, it's, it's not, uh, not everywhere. <laughs> But then you also put in there that, um, you know, these states are also places of ordinary life where the everyday struggles of joys of post-Celtic Tiger Ireland will be played out by the residents, ultimately with the hope of building something better from these incomplete spaces. So, I mean, since the time that, that you wrote that in 2011, um, where where would you say things are now? So the film A Place for Ghostwell is, is directed by Patrick Baxter, who'd be um, a friend of mine again, who had kind of come into contact through kind of research. Um, it was developed as, as part of a PhD project. But so he's kind of became interested, I suppose, in looking at the phenomenon of ghost estates in the first instance and looking at the, what's the impact of these in terms of, you know, the, the collapse of that bubble and what does that kind of say about the kind of situation Ireland is in. But the film, I think, ended up being kind of uh, quite a broader kind of ex- exploration of Longford as a place and this kind of place where, where he grew up and where he would have sort of left maybe you know, reasonably early when he was 17, 18 and kind of was somewhere he came back to in order to make this film to a certain extent. So what you kind of see there, I suppose, is, you know, as you mentioned, it's 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 quite distant from that kind of stereotypical view of Ireland in the sense that it's like it's dealing with kind of a place which is um, 
you know, is, is kind of as much urban as it is rural in the sense that it's a big enough kind of uh, big enough town. It's got a lot of kind of complexity, got a lot of kind of diversity there, and it's not kind of something that's captured within it. And he kind of weaves a lot of his own kind of personal narrative and history in and the history of Longford in it. So um, a really kind of interesting project and kind of recommend kind of taking a look at it. Um, the photographs then in a settlement which is done by an artist, Anthony Ahohi, and they're... Um, Again, kind of looking, I suppose, this, this idea of thinking about the, what you call like the political ecology of, of that kind of property bubble, you know, in the sense that, you know, you're talking about the, the redevelopment of large spaces in the country, which involves like the often kind of redevelopment of greenfield sites as well, in particular how this kind of worked as a very sprawling kind of project. And what he did for those set of photographs, actually, is he kind of used to kind of basically hop over fences at nighttime. And these photographs are taken with um, long exposures, I think he just set the camera up and essentially left it kind of work for, for hours and kind of would take these kind of, you know, the photographs themselves or kind of this kind of sort of haunted kind of eerie sort of glow, but, you know, very much kind of frames, you know, the ruin, not as, as something is kind of beautiful, but also as kind of like a, a destructive kind of element to it. So both of those projects, I suppose, and the work I was doing at the time were, were kind of characteristic of, of that period in Ireland where there's, there's kind of, kind of quite a lot of churn and transformation and, and really kind of the decades since has been kind of um, a lot more kind of transformation really, you know? So where did I say where we're at? So on the one level, I think that um, there's been a kind of continuation of the broad development model. So like most of these estates are, are in very different situations and circumstances, depending on where they are in the country. I think there's like, the policy response was was a bit kind of meager in terms of the money that was kind of put to it, and that the assumption in a lot of cases was that these states would be kind of solved by the market or the property market would come back. Now, some local authorities, like Longford, for example, are actually quite proactive in the sense of like you know targeting particular problems on the states or dealing with kind of issues with them. But essentially, kind of what has happened with the states, I suppose, is that over time, probably a lot of them have have gradually, you know been resolved or filled up so the official perspective would be that you know unfinished estates are an issue that's resolved you know there's we're now down to kind of maybe you know less than 50 or something like that you know as, as identified states within the country um but the reality is probably a lot more complex in terms of what kinds of resolution has happened and one of the things i suppose one of the things that's important i suppose that's happened in ireland since the recovery is that there were you know the the crash and the recovery or economic recovery you know that we've had to both the economy but also the property market has been kind of highly uneven since then so on the one hand you've got somewhere like dublin which is now kind of really far down the line of a, a new housing and homelessness crisis and this is like a lot partly on the basis of the kinds of political decisions that were made in response to the last crisis response or in relation to the kind of new sets of you know property and financial actors that have kind of come into the scene in Dublin. And so here you've gone for a situation where there's a massive discussion around, you know, um, too much vacancy, say, to, you know, a situation where now we're trying to kind of desperately kind of scramble and find anything that is vacant that could be brought back into use for housing. Um, but that's not often the case then in, in other parts of the country. And you've got, um, you know, in a situation where you're kind of, you know, have very uneven recovery. So in the one sense, there was a lot of jobs, for example, lost in construction in the last crash, which didn't really kind of come back in a lot of parts of the country. 
uh, in the same kind of way. And so if you've got kind of a concentration of employment in Dublin and you've got kind of the strains that kind of come with that around kind of housing, around transport and all of these kinds of things. And on the other side of it, then you've got kind of uh, some areas of, of more rural parts of the country, which are kind of in kind of decline and, and population decline and other kinds of things. So <clears throat> I would say that on the one level that you've got a continuation of the broad set of kind of policies that caused the trouble in the first place, that that's kind of led to really kind of pinch points of problems in, in a city like Dublin. And it's led to kind of maybe slower to materialize kind of problems of decline other parts of the country as well. So a kind of complex geographical picture. Matt Keane will probably hate me saying this, but um, talking about that period when he was writing all that in 2011, I was looking after a study abroad program at the time. And I took a group of students uh, on this trip from Dublin to Cork. And we stopped off at the Rock of Cashel, which is this like historic site um, in Ireland, these kind of this ruined buildings. A lot of people go and see it. Um, it looks very spectacular. But I'm getting back on the bus afterwards and the bus driver uh, was reading the newspaper and he starts talking to me on because I'm sitting right behind him as we're driving. And uh, he's like, I was reading about these ghost estates and uh, there's this guy, Keen O'Callaghan, who's doing all this research into him and it's really interesting. And he starts going on this. And he said, uh, yeah, yeah, I actually know Keen kind of well. And he's like, like oh you do will would you tell him that like I, I was really interested in what he was writing about and uh, at that point i knew kian had uh, had made it uh, when uh, when he was being talked about like just you know as in being really interesting but um i i think it, it's good to to get a sense of uh kind of your your research interests and stuff before we we delve into the the postgrad stuff and Keen, I suppose like you talked about how you <laughs> fell in a little bit into the the PhD but I suppose can you talk about that um the the PhD journey writing a PhD and your relationship um with your supervisor being in this being in the student in that context um, yeah, sure. So, <clears throat> um, as I said, I mean, uh, kind of coming, like I, I went, which is probably a little bit unusual, I, I kind of went directly from undergraduate into a PhD, um, didn't exactly start at that, sort of started kind of like a research master's and then upgraded that to a PhD during the process. Um, it still took me like five years to complete the PhD, so it wasn't a short period of time or anything. Um, I think in terms of going into it, uh, the person who ended up being my supervisor, Dennis Lennon, would have been, um, you know, a lecturer. I kind of really kind of liked his lectures and kind of would have done so well. And I'm sort of one of the people, I guess, who would have been talking to me about postgraduate options at the time. Um, and I suppose as a kind of student experience, you're, uh, there can be kind of, I suppose serendipitous kind of moments where you're you're a bit kind of clueless in terms of you know what you could do or what might be possible and stuff. And I do actually remember I think it's probably at the start of my third year, which had been the final year of my degree, and I was having a meeting with Dennis about one of the courses or something, and he kind of had mentioned I think that you know they were discussing me at the exam boards, which you know now from the other side I can totally see kind of that kind of process as well. But it said something about you know that you you know 
you could come out with a first or whatever you should you know you're kind of close enough to that and you should should be doing that you know and I think that that actually kind of uh, I don't know gave me a bit of impetus or a bit of confidence kind of like to to push for that in the final year as well and when I like did and did well in the exams and came out with it and um, there's probably a couple of different lecturers between like geography and English talking to me about kind of postgraduate options and um, the geography one again kind of sounded like an interesting kind of uh, option and part of me kind of like chose geography or went towards geography because it's like a very diverse discipline and I remember thinking at the time that I could like write about English literature in geography but I couldn't write about geography in English literature and like that's a bit of an undersell of English literature, but like that's the kind of rationale at the time. So I think the idea initially was to to do a research master's and I had put in a proposal for that and, and started that. And um, so again, you kind of, as I said, I don't think, I certainly at the time wasn't that kind of aware, I suppose, of, of what I was getting into necessarily or what kind of like a, a research master's or a PhD would involve. Would have done a, an undergraduate dissertation and um, that would have went kind of well, I suppose. Um, and so I started the project, put in a proposal, um, did kind of the first year of it, kind of enjoyed, I suppose, the, the idea of just kind of focusing on one thing and kind of had a good group of kind of postgrads who started at the same time as me you know um, kind of like seemed like a nice kind of cohort I found the kind of social experience of it kind of quite good actually I think you know in the terms of um, that you're kind of dealing with a smaller group of people and um, that it was kind of was good in that kind of sense um, in my first year I applied for um, funding um, so to the Irish Research Council um, and I got that funding for my second year and so the idea, I think, at that point then was, I think I probably at that point transitioned from a, a, a research master's to a PhD, or there might have still been an idea that I'd kind of finish up the research master's and go elsewhere for a PhD. Um, so experience during it, I suppose, it, it's a lot of it is kind of like learning as I go. I, I get the sense of from talking to postgrads now that a lot of them are, are a lot more familiar with what might be involved and a lot of postgrads coming in now would have been uh they're often kind of older you know have like chosen to you know go back and do a phd rather than kind of starting kind of way i did um and i think uh again i suppose we're i mean cork is sort of like you know it's uh a bit kind of isolated from a lot of other departments and stuff like that so we wouldn't have like a lot of other geography departments down there so uh i kind of felt like a lot of people were you know doing their own thing sort of and there wasn't really the sense of kind of pressure or expectation that i certainly kind of get from speaking to postgrads now wouldn't have been my experience doing it again but certainly i think that there's there's periods of kind of where it's very up and down during it you know there's there's periods where you feel like you're on a good trajectory with it or you kind of know where you're going or um and then there's other periods where you kind of totally kind of lose it or lose sight of it and um sorry uh just periods where you kind of lose sight of it or you kind of feel like you know you're you're far enough into the tunnel but you can't really see the delight at the end of the tunnel yet 
And my experience, which I kind of like, is something I suppose I talk about with postgrads now, is like you know the the kind of various stages in which you kind of feel kind of more or less kind of on top of the work or on top of the project, or which bits are a kind of real slog for it. Um, and so I suppose like the for me like the the project kind of came together kind of gradually over that period of time and was you know start I suppose you're you're kind of figuring out kind of what the you know what you're looking at what the research topic is what's the kind of set of literatures and stuff you're kind of engaging with and my supervisor would have you know just kind of let me kind of really go off and do my own thing to a certain extent or you know it was um was quite good in that kind of sense really I think you know allowing you kind of develop kind of intellectually or whatever myself without kind of you know laying down too many kind of guiding boundaries or anything like that so it's something I kind of try to do a bit more with my own PhD students as well. Well let me ask you this so uh, with with TCD in the upcoming term it's going to be a hybrid model so I guess my question would be, and this is very, very general question, um, but for incoming postgrad students that this is kind of the new thing in terms of, okay, we're going to do a hybrid model for the upcoming term. Is there anything that a postgrad student that you would want them to know for like your class or as a, or being a postgrad, is there anything that you feel they should know or how to prepare for a hybrid model? Well, that's a very uh, good question of an emerging set of things that I don't think we've kind of quite properly got our head around yet. Um, so yeah, so I mean the guidance I suppose we have at the moment is um coming in is that we will be doing a lot of uh online teaching for undergraduates mm-hmm. in particular and you know, for small group teaching, um, which may include some of the postgrad classes we don't kind of like know essentially yet. Might be more of a face to face kind of element of that. Um mm-hmm. I think that the what I kind of recommend for students would probably be different from depending on kind of what stage they're at. But I suppose some general, you know, guidelines would, would be kind of like the same kind of things that follow sort of in class as well. So, I mean, one of the big transitions obviously is, mm-hmm. you know, coming from school into college is the extent to which you're kind of learning is self-directed. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, our, my approach and approach of colleagues, a lot of my colleagues would be that lectures, for example, are, I'm not kind of like standing up kind of imparting the information to you. Lectures are often a jumping off point for you to kind of like explore topics or other things. Um, as I get towards kind of later years, so the fourth year of degree uh, would be a lot more kind of discussion based and, you know, I'm trying to, like one of the questions Cullivan sent me beforehand was around what might be different from you know, undergraduate to postgraduate in terms of the experience. And, like, I don't necessarily see it as a kind of, you know, a direct kind of, you know, cut in between them, but rather try to kind of transition students towards more self-directed or more kind of that kind of model by the later stage in their degree. So for undergraduates, um, for fortunes, for example, I'd often try to be you know, getting them to kind of like lead a lot of the, the class and to direct a lot of the class. So I leave a lot of space for kind of, you know, discussion and try to kind of find ways to sort of facilitate that and to, you know, I'd have kind of sets of readings that are assigned for things, but they're really kind of a way to sort of, you know, get students to kind of engage themselves and to come with their own perspectives and ideas from it. And similarly, the kind of later modules that have kind of 
project elements that are kind of entail kind of research. So again, it's kind of trying to get students to kind of like think a little bit more in that kind of self-directed kind of sense. Um, so that's something I'd see as kind of transitioning them into kind of what, what master students might kind of want. And I think PhD students are again, maybe, you know, another step on from that. So like, but what might be a kind of key difference, I suppose, in terms of undergraduates and postgraduates is that the undergraduate experience is maybe a longer time to kind of figure out kind of what you're interested in, figure out kind of like what you enjoy or like doing. And as you get to kind of later stages of your undergraduate into postgraduate, you really get to kind of like, you know, focus in on kind of what you're, you know, passionate about yourself or what you're interested in yourself. And you want to devise your own kinds of questions, your own sorts of approaches. So in terms of like the, the question, I suppose, about a, a blended approach, um, I'm trying to kind of my my own thinking at the moment is trying to kind of mirror that a little bit where um, there's maybe some blocks or components of the online stuff, which are really kind of like a, a very like brief launching off point into kind of some deeper topics. So it might be kind of like a shorter recorded lecture, for example, that outlines this is kind of what we're trying to cover in this little bit of it. That might be kind of supplemented then by um, kind of readings that students have to kind of engage with themselves or so, a set of kind of maybe questions or prompts for, for discussion that might kind of happen either on a kind of, you know, a discussion forum basis or in a kind of, you know, uh, an online kind of face-to-face -face lecture in the sense of a bigger kind of thing and then hopefully are able to happen in kind of smaller group kind of discussions as well. So I think, you know, because what I'd sort of advise is that um, students need to kind of like prepare ahead of time and that it's going to be more important to do work prior to the lectures, you know, and after the lectures than it might be in a kind of normal term or that what you might kind of be able to to get by with in the normal term, you know, in the sense of kind of showing up to the lecture and having that kind of the virtue of that sort of, you know, discussion from the lecturer, but also the discussion in class that kind of like gives you a kind of basis for things. Because I think that like now um, we're all going to have to build a kind of a bit of different scaffolds in which we can kind of um, forward on the kinds of the ideas. So I suppose, yeah, that would be one way to think about it. Yeah, and Keen, I suppose one of the, the things in terms of talking about your own um, experience of the PhD was just to kind of set the scene and get, because we, when we talked to Martin, we we heard about, I suppose, his role um, as the postgrad support officer. But I think it would be interesting, I suppose, to hear from the academic side of the house, from the lecturer's perspective, what the role of a PhD supervisor is and how you approach that relationship. And if there are, you know, particular challenges that PhD students face, I, I know you were talking there that, you know, there's no direct cutoff between, say, undergrads and postgrads. But are there particular things with PhD students as they go through that journey? Yeah. So, um like my own experience with my PhD supervisor, I think was was very good, and I had kind of someone I got on really well with, and I think it was it's very kind of like formative or important for me in the sense that you know always kind of like treated me you know like a person as opposed to just kind of like you know someone who's kind of doing a research project underneath them, and that's something I kind of I kind of essentially tried to kind of mirror similar kinds of approaches with students of my own. So yeah, I think. Like there is key differences and it's very different. It's very delicate kind of um, 
sort of relationship, it's a very de delicate kind of thing to be sort of like, you know, doing supervision or to kind of make that transition. So, I mean, we talk about sort of say, undergraduate experience is is very different in the sense that it's very kind of, um, it's much broader, tends to be much more and more maybe, you know, fleeting, you know, uh, encounters with staff or, you know, students can go through their whole degree without really kind of talking to kind of staff on a kind of one-on-one -on -one basis, you know, like a lot of them kind of don't do that anymore and kind of like we obviously encourage people to kind of like you know try to talk to people in office hours or you know try to wait find ways in which you can kind of make that sort of happen but i suppose the the flip side of that is that then that there's not as much kind of riding on those kind of personal relationships or anything you know so a student's degree as an undergraduate is structured in a much different way in the sense that you know they've got set of assignments it's in a group with kind of other kind of people to submit those um and that kind of winnows down i suppose so like the flip of what i was saying i guess about you know as master students and as phd students people kind of focus in on what they're sort of passionate about or interested in focus down into their self-directed learning is that that kind of then can get increasingly kind of focused in on like a particular set of kind of individuals and that's kind of comes to a head i suppose really with a sort of a phd supervisor relationship so there's tends to be kind of like a lot kind of writing on that then you know there's a lot writing on that kind of relationship sort of working out and so from a kind of student perspective and from a supervisor perspective as well i think you know that like it's um the phd can kind of be made or break and or you know made or not you know on the basis that um, that relationship kind of goes smoothly so in terms of like how i think everyone sort of approaches it in a different way and I think that there's, firstly, I suppose there's there's very different approaches depending on the kind of the discipline you're in. Um, so, for example, in more kind of lab-based or science kind of side of things, there tends to be kind of these larger kind of research teams where PhD students often kind of fit into a project and doing kind of a component of that project. So, I mean, the research in that sense tends to be a bit more kind of, can be a bit more directed or guided by supervisor or by the, the principal investigator on a kind of a larger project like that so in that sense there's this kind of difference there um whereas kind of say on some of the side of the house i mean i suppose are in human geography um students might come in on the basis of a broad interest of the phd supervisor and it might be working under a particular project but they also you know might be really coming coming with their own project or coming with their own sort of ideas and that would have been my experience as a phd student myself so that's sort of different then as well in the sense you know that you've got kind of um, people who are generating their own sort of project generating their own kind of set of intellectual inquiries about something that's something that different approaches to manage those at the same time then as well i think there's there's very different approaches just depending on the kind of individual about how people want to kind of manage the supervisory relationship because one of the things about a PhD in particular that makes that such a complex thing is that, you know, you have, say, you could supervise, you know, a research student as an undergraduate or as a master's student, and you're you may be talking about kind of six months or a year of like, you know, not so intense kind of supervision or, you know, um, meetings. And it's it's easier to kind of like to make that kind of work, you know, regardless of people's kind of individual personalities. Whereas for a PhD, you're kind of talking about, um, four years maybe of a person's life, you know, which they're investing in this kind of large project, which which is a kind of a psychological kind of task in itself, you know, like that, you know, people, you know, 
to get started in another project. I think oh, it's great to be working on this for a period of time. And I remember at the start of mine, I thought there's no way I'd be working on this, you know, in three years' time. But you know, five years later, of course, I was. You know? Um, so that brings its own kind of sets of ups and downs and challenges in terms of like, you know, what people are experiencing your life obviously just doesn't stop during that period. You know, you're, you're growing and transitioning and stuff there as well. And you're going through all of your own kind of personal stuff. So I think as a supervisor, like, I don't think we get like any, or often don't get real kind of training kind of. <laughs> in sort of what's involved in that. I mean, there's, for a lot of aspects of academia, it's kind of an element of kind of learning on the job, sort of, you know. So um, we're kind of, most of the stuff we do, I think is really kind of like learning by doing. And I think supervision is kind of like in, in the same kind of way. So I think, like my experience myself, I suppose, and so I have like a bit of, a bit of insight, a bit of experience maybe from how I approach things myself how I've seen other people approach things and kind of just some of my experience, I suppose, in dealing with students, both within the department and a bit within school, you get a sense of like how some of those kind of relationships might work or not. Um, my own approach would, would kind of, I suppose, follow a bit of what I would add my own supervisor, trying to kind of um, take people as sort of individuals. So I try to um, treat people in a kind of, in a rounded sort of way that I'm, you know, certainly not kind of focusing on just on the project and um, not like interested or wanting to know what's going on in people's personal lives. Um, obviously, I kind of let people, you know, let students kind of come to me with as much or as little as that as, as they want, you know. Um, but I think it's kind of important to get a sense of sort of, you know, not just kind of like how the work is going, but how people are doing around the work. Because, you know, in one sense, PhD was kind of talking about comes with a whole host of kind of psychological challenges about dealing with a big project, but also like increasingly now there's such kind of feeling of kind of competition kind of coming out of it and the pressure around the kind of really shrinking kind of job market that also can lead to its own kind of, you know, issues. And I'm sure there might have been something you were talking with Martin about as well. Um, so I just try to kind of take people on individual terms then and try to kind of within that we're getting to know people a bit better try to kind of figure out what's the best way to sort of engage in kind of constructive motivation and to kind of progress the project with that and like i wouldn't say that that's like anything that's that i have a formula for anything like that that's that's really kind of you know going on the basis of sort of individuals so so that's kind of how i'd approach it myself um i know other people probably have very different approaches and i think that that's i mean it's it's i'm not sure what you'd kind of do about it in a sense of like you know it's a, it's a perennial kind of problem in the sense that you're going to have different kinds of approaches you're going to have very different kinds of students who are kind of coming into this and you're going to have you know what might work really well for one student doesn't work well for another student and um, you're going to have kind of issues that come up with kind of that supervisory relationship. Um, in terms of kind of like I suppose what can be done I mean just if you want to put in ask me questions is fine too but like one thing that's kind of we've been kind of implementing or is, is being rolled out at the moment in Trinity is, is um, the introduction of a kind of panel type approach and supervision 
Um, so it's a sort of light touch version, maybe what you might get kind of quite substantially in, in the US context where there's kind of a bigger panel of, of people involved in supervising student. Um, but that's kind of something that's that started from kind of last year where each new student now has like the supervisor or you know, supervisor and co-supervisor plus two other people on a panel who kind of will, you know, in a structured kind of way, will check in with that student or have like meetings to check on progress and also to kind of check on like those other aspects of things. And I think that's that's an important kind of fail safe in the sense that, you know, if 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 for example things aren't going well in a supervisory relationship, it gives like an opportunity to kind of like, you know, to discuss that in a in a, in a way that kind of can try to maybe resolve things, you know, before they kind of, you know, come to a head in a kind of difficult sense. Or it can also you know, give an indication of where maybe changes need to be made on, on either kind of side of things. And I suppose, Keen, for like the people listening, it's probably going to be those, say, who are advisors or in a student support capacity. So I think like how much interaction do you have with, say, the admin side of the house, the student support side of the house? And I think it would be interesting for for them to hear like from from that the supervisor's perspective or the ad, the academic side like how they how you see those interactions playing out and how much input you have and and what you would like how you would like to see those interactions take place. Um yeah, so that that's a good question I suppose. So um I'm again so I mean I've been in the coordinator role for a few years so I would I suppose in that kind of sense have a lot more kind of like one-on-one with students within the geography department and so part of what I kind of have learned to do is to try to link people up with relevant kinds of supports Um, and that can be in all sorts of ways and, and usually that's it's students would often kind of come to me in a kind of um say you know in confidence and i'd often kind of would would kind of just advise students on kind of what their options are in terms of you know if they have particular kinds of you know issues or you know for example if if students are having kind of mental health issues you know i try to direct them towards counseling services or you know to direct them towards student support services and um for for that or for kind of financial difficulties and so part of like my role, I suppose, in that is is with learning kind of what's available within the college. Discipline coordinators then will often, and I've done myself in terms of, you know, the previous director, I'm kind of, at the moment, I've sort of been double-jobbing the two things. So um, I kind of get a bit of a sense of both sides of the aisle, but often kind of might kind of raise some issues if the student was, you know, okay with that, with also the, the director within the school. And the director within the school then can kind of, maybe link in with the dean and so the current dean of graduate studies who's just finishing up his term is neville cox and he's like really good and very kind of you know proactive in terms of you know those kind of student supports as well and about linking in people with kind of the, the right sorts of people um as well as that within school so the the main kind of admin person i i deal with is a uh, called francis leogan trinity and she's like brilliant in terms of um an oversight of all of the research phds and a number of the top masters programs as well so she'll be someone who's 
<clears throat> very familiar with students and often very familiar with kind of some of the issues that students go through. So I'd often like would work through her as well in terms of like um, identifying kinds of sports that, that can be kind of various sorts of things, you know, so this can be, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's, that's really kind of like troubleshooting on kind of, you know, I, my registration fee hasn't gone through properly or I'm not registered for the year because there's still this bit on standing, you know, so I'd, I'd often maybe try, if someone gets in touch with me on that. I go through Francis maybe to try to figure out who to, who to call essentially in Trinity. And that could be someone in academic registry, for example, you know, that like will kind of resolve that issue. Um, so it's a bit of kind of like knowing, I suppose, what are different channels through which to do different things. And that's definitely something I would have kind of learned, I suppose, by doing that job over the last few years. As director, you tend to get stuff that's, um, you know, some kind of crisis cases, for example, we'll say. And um, so, again, what I would try to do in that is, is like, is to know kind of who to link in with. And I think that that's, again, something to sort of like get a bit from, you know, just having problems and dealing with those problems or trying to find ways to kind of like to resolve them. And from sitting on the graduate studies committee as well with a lot of these kinds of people and these kinds of roles and figuring out kind of like who to put people in touch with. Um, I, I kind of can't really, I suppose, talk kind of... Um, across the board about what other people's experience with that might be. And um, again, I uh, I don't get the sense that there's kind of like really a standard operating procedure, we'll say, you know, to follow with these things. So some of it is, is just a bit kind of is being a bit intuitive about like who might be someone to kind of contact in this particular circumstance. And that again is about dealing with kind of students um, as they come. I suppose just I, I I would it would it benefit students? Would it benefit you? Would it benefit the admin staff if there was a sort of a, a standard operating procedure in place? I think so. Yeah, I mean, like I I there's definitely been kind of situations where I you know you're trying to respond to something and you would like there to be kind of a playbook, I suppose, you know, um, and I think, I think that that something like that would probably be worthwhile and useful. Um, I think that there's, there's probably a limit to that in the sense that, you know, like one thing we're supposed we're learning with COVID and, you know, I've done a lot of, because my term as the director has been in the midst of COVID is, you know, I have a lot of back and forth with the Dean of Graduate Studies, for example, and, you know, I think he's learning and, you know, passing on to people is just, you know, as soon as you think you've, you know, resolved all the problems or as soon as you envisioned all the kinds of things that students might be dealing with, there's like, there's always a new one that sort of like, you know, catches you sort of off guard. So I definitely think that there, there's probably, you know, room for like a certain kind of, set of like standard operating procedures for kinds of issues that might arise or might arise on a regular basis so you kind of like you know who to, to get in touch with you know who to kind of contact about them um i think that there's always probably going to be a level of um intuition 
about kind of how to respond to these things as well. I know you both work in student services, so uh, you're probably very familiar with that sort of as well. And I suppose it'd be interested to hear your own perspective on it. But um, that issues kind of do sort of like arise that are, you know, maybe kind of you haven't experienced before, you haven't encountered before. But I do think, yeah, that is kind of the longer I've been in kind of the role as well. You you do see this, there's, you know, I'm more confident in terms of like, I suppose spotting signs of things or immediately knowing kind of how something might be kind of resolved. I think that kind of goes both in terms of student services or in terms of issues that individual students might have, but also kind of like across the board in terms of, you know, just sort of regular kind of, you know, administrative problems that might come up that, you know, figuring out or knowing how to how to resolve those. Yeah. And as we uh, wind down on the interview, I mean, we've discussed a lot from like your roles that you have at TCD, uh, PhD students, postgrad students, um, some of the research projects you've worked on in the past. You have a lot of different hats that you wear. So how do you how do you unwind? <laughs> how do I unwind? Um, yes, or maybe you don't. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I you know I have also two young kids at home, you know, so that's uh, both a kind of a mechanism of unwinding and a mechanism <laughs> of stress, you know, particularly with kind of homework. And um, so, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm probably tired from all that, you know. Um, yeah, I like music and stuff like that, so I kind of. Uh, have a decent sound system here and listen to records and things and you know read other stuff that's not academic kind of work um yeah these kind of things <laughs> watch tv with my partner i i think it probably like it's interesting from coming from the perspective of student support um or ad- advising and particularly say in, in an irish context because i think we're we're s- PhDs used to be such standalone and I think we even see that and I've worked in a number of institutions and the way in which the admissions process works for PhD students tends to be very different than it does for the rest of the cohorts and it it it, it very standalone and it has almost traditionally been that way I think in terms of the supervisor uh, student relationship, but it sounds from what you're saying that, you know, there's a recognition that putting a panel into to place to, to get away from maybe that isolationist approach. And it sounds like, you know, mm-hmm. there is a kind of a more holistic approach. Yeah. And so, sort of on that, I mean, there's, there's been kind of like, say, you know, those kind of structural things are coming in or the panel things, but we also try to do a lot at the department level, which is much kind of softer sort of stuff, you know. So um, I think there's a lot that can be kind of gained to some places which do kind of break down those kind of barriers a bit better. And, you know, because, as you say, Colin, like students can come in on like, you know, that very individual basis where they've contacted a supervisor and have that relationship set up. And I think some students are can be a bit kind of, anxious about that then in terms of wanting that to kind of go well and stay well and therefore you know don't have as much kind of interaction or engagement with other staff and there's not as much there there can be more of a kind of chasm between staff and postgrads than is necessary so I mean we've been kind of trying to do some stuff at the department level even just like you know dude I was happy with as I kind of democratize coffee morning we have a coffee morning kind of once a week and used to be sort of you know on the responsibility of postgrads to sort of you know make coffee and things like that and you know to 
know, get department money to buy biscuits or whatever, but sort of like changed it around to a rota system where anybody can kind of sign up for it. So it's sort of like uh, staff and postgrads and postdocs as well, you know, um, who are kind of making coffee in different weeks. And it tends to be a bit more of a, you know, a healthy competition in terms of, you know, baked goods and stuff like that as well coming into it, you know, but it's, you know, these kind of smaller things. And we also tried to do something kind of a bit different with the, there's a postgrad symposium once a year in the department as well, where, first and second year postgrads kind of present on their research and present, um, um, you know, an update on it. And we tried to make that more of a sort of an event last year where we kind of had it as a sort of half day event, the lunch before and kind of went to the pub afterwards. So we kind of, you know, have a bit more of that kind of informal interaction. This year it had to happen over uh, Microsoft Teams, but um, I think it went kind of reasonably well, actually, you know, where we kind of got a, a fair bit of kind of good audience and buy-in from staff and people were, you know, um, students kind of presented over that and, you know, kind of made recordings of their sort of presentations and then kind of had questions and stuff come in through uh, chat function and things. So, yeah, it's it's those kind of bigger changes can happen, but also a lot can be done in terms of like a cultural level, you know, and there's there's other departments within the school, like zoology and botany for example that do a it's called a nerd club which is um, a kind of more informal set of talks that are given by postgrads postdocs and, and staff that are going to happen i think once a month or something like that and it's a really kind of good way of like creating a kind of a common collegiality among different levels there and can be you know aimed at sort of practical skills as well that postgrads might want to to learn and things and um so those are also very important well, I feel like we could go on for another couple hours with this, but uh, <laughs> I know it's I know it's getting late late over there for you all. So I think we will end this interview. But I'm looking forward to getting this uh, this posted on one of our upcoming episodes. But thank you so much. No worries. Thank you, yeah, Paul, for having me on. A lot of great themes from these interviews and mentorship in and outside higher ed, having real conversations with students and positive impacts when you really care about students and their challenges and successes. Thank you so much to our guests on episode 16. Thank you, Evelyn Knox. Thank you, Michael Strasosmo. And thank you, Keanu Callahan. Our next episode drops Monday, August 17th. And if you don't follow us on social media, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. We'll post some updates, some great clips and let you know when our next episodes are coming out for the rest of this year. All right, take care, everyone. Don't wanna complicate ya, complicate ya, complicate ya.